and we're live. Perfect. Derek, it is an absolute pleasure to sit down with you and I'm hoping you can give a little bit of a brief introduction for people who might not know who you are. For sure, yeah. Uh, my name is Derek Epp, uh, Chief of Chiacton First Nation. Uh, I'm in my fifth year already as, as Chief. I can't believe it. Time flies. Um, yeah, I, my background is in social work though. I got my BSW and uh, I was a social worker at Yothmeath for a number of years prior to being elected as Chief. Uh, I've been married for two years. I have a beautiful son named Jude and my wife's name is Shana. Uh, yeah, life's good. I mean, we've been, we are high school sweethearts, so we've kind of went to prom together and, uh, yeah, we've, we've got a pretty, pretty awesome life. Uh, I have a great, great family, identical twin. Uh, my parents are fantastic. Uh, my wife's family's an amazing family to be a part of as well. So I'm pretty fortunate for, for who I am and where I am. And, uh, you know, I'm really, um, <clears throat> I've had a, a good journey to get where I am, but it's, uh, life's been, life's been good. That's awesome. Well, let's get started with the family first. Cool. And could you tell me a little bit about your background, your family's background for sure. um, and your traditional name? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, I get my First Nations lineage from my mother's side. So my dad's German. Uh, my mom is actually from the Wielalik family, uh, which is direct descendants of the Chukwaik tribe. And uh, actually my, my traditional name, Wielalik, is comes from one of the four original chiefs from the Chukwaik tribe. <clears throat> uh, the four were uh, Wielalik, Siemchis, um, Yehuelum and Thalachiatol. Um, so I come, I'm one of the direct descendants of the original Fort Chukwe tribe chiefs. And, you know, I learned a lot about that through uh, just growing up and living on Chiacton my whole life. But I also learned a lot uh, of the history of my family when I started post-secondary education. But then even more so when I got into this role, I, I had the, the, the honor to learn a lot more about my family as well. And <clears throat> um, yeah, you know, I, I, it's amazing to see that I've the Wielalik family has a long history of leadership and uh, <clears throat> within the governance of the Chukwaik tribe people. So for me, it's kind of you come full circle and uh, being able to be chief and, and uh, be in a leadership role. It's uh, you look back and I guess it's in my genetics, <laughs> you know, and uh, some of the stories. Though, there's a lot of connections to the land, connections to the territory from that, that gives me the honor of carrying the name Wielalik. And um, it connects me back to the Chukwaik Valley, uh, to Chiactin and Chiactol and many of the place names around uh, the Chukwaik tribe. And, um, you know, there's a, a lot of stories that connect my family. One being the, the bear story where three of my uh, ancestors, the, the Wielalik brothers, um, went out one day and one of the brothers turned into a bear in order to feed his the family. And, uh, I, what I've been told is you can recognize uh, the ancestors of, of the Wielalik family with a, a, a black bear with a diamond on his chest. <clears throat> so that's one of many. And uh, it's the one that really is, is cool to me is that uh, apparently Wielalik the fifth was one of the um, the chiefs, the leaders from the Chukwaik, who actually uh, had some of the Chukwaik tribe people move into the Stitas area, into the valley. And actually one of, one of the designers, if you've been to Stala Nation or Kokolitsa, uh, Building 10, the new health building, it's an inverted roof. Um, and I, I've been told that uh, Wielalik V was the one who designed that inverted roof. And it was for multiple reasons. It, one was it actually would serve the purpose of warning the people if people were coming up if warriors were coming up the Stitas and up the river to, to come to the Chukwaik people and they would warn all the, the warriors to come out by having water come through this inverted roof and it would make a noise. So, um, yeah, and saying that just my name, uh, my family, it connects me to, to who I am, our cultures, our traditions, our land. So um, I'm really honored to carry that name and 
uh, I carry it with with pride. And and you know, one of the things that somebody told me when I was given the name after I got elected in is that it can be taken just as quickly as it's given to you. Yeah. So to respect it, to walk with it, not not walk on it. So I think of that whenever you know going into certain situations or meetings and um yeah i just i just take that very seriously so, that's yeah. awesome and that kind of <clears throat> echoes what eddie gardner was talking about because he kind of mentioned that like uh female elders would kind of guide who was going to be the leader of the community yeah. and that that's really important because i think that having that check and balance and seeing whether or not the leader is going in the right direction right. or respecting the values of the community is so important and i think that the farther the leader gets away from the community the more problems you can run into and so yeah. that deep connection is consistent throughout indigenous culture yeah. no, i couldn't agree more it's, it's interesting like um you know, there's always this, this uh, when the Harvard, Harvard Business Study came out many years ago, and it, it really drew a line between business and politics. <clears throat> and that happened for a lot of communities. And, and I, you know, obviously respect the autonomy and the decisions of each community. Uh, but I really come from the, the perspective that I need to be really involved in, in both the, the business, the operations, the day-to-day -day operations at Chiat, and, um But also, obviously, my role is more political. But in order to, to meet the community's needs, you have to know what's going on in the community, yeah. right? And you can't just be going to to political meetings and that and that. And, and, and I respect any chief or delegate who that's their their role. And I know we need those political chiefs and leaders. Uh, but in you know, I carry this this belief that I really do need to be involved in in the community, know what's going on. Um, I live on Chiat and have for you know the vast majority of my life, and um, being able to have a pulse on what's going on in the community really. Uh, helps guide me in decision making and you know being a really empathetic leader is, is something that I really believe in and, and I uh, yeah I, I think you're bang on with that. Awesome well yeah. let's start a little bit with Shiacton as yeah. a whole can you tell us some of the history where the lands are located some of our listeners might have this is yeah. the first time they're hearing the name. Yeah so Chiacton or Chiactal, um, it, it derives from the it means uh, place of fish weir. So Chiak actually means uh, fish weir and Tol means place. So, so Chiak Tol was actually a place where uh, the Chokweak had a fish weir. And historically, so Chiakton is actually located in Sardis. So if you know uh, Veteran Promontory Road and the Save-On Foods off of Veteran Promontory, we actually own that shopping center. And uh, we, our, our boundaries are pretty much from, you know, we have a, they call it the Chiakton boot that runs along the mountainside to Keith Wilson, but then our, our boundaries are pretty much South Sumas uh, to Promontory Road and all the way to the Bailey Dump. So um, yeah, that's that's pretty much Chiacton, but um, again, it's, it's more of a place name, right? So Chiacto is more of a place name uh, along with so many of our, well, pretty much all of our uh, Chokwayak communities were place names. So, you know, really our connection is back to the Chokwayak tribe and, and that's who we are as people. You know, Chiacto was a was an Indian Act band that was something that was dictated to us. Um, and, uh, but we, you know, I think we are fortunate to, for our location. I think for a lot of communities, location is key and, and we're, we're fortunate enough to have our location where it is. It's a double-edged sword because with that comes uh, development and with that comes uh, the progress and the, um, you know, the uh, society really wanting to live on Chiac. And so it does have its barriers and challenges as well. Yeah. yeah, I was actually, that's one of the questions I was going to ask because it's, I'm from Chihuahua First yeah. Nation and that's a very rural, um, not very economically developed yeah. community in comparison to something like Shiacton. So I'm interested in your thoughts. What was that like to kind of see the development through your childhood all the way till now and see that direction and that move? Because I think Squayala, as I talked to yeah. Jimmy about, is in a very similar boat. The economic development seems like the best move yep. because it's going to help 
relieve people from poverty. It's going to create yeah. jobs and opportunities. Yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult. Like I, I grew up on on Chiac and on several acres. You know, I my playground was my backyard growing up, and um, and now that that land is developed where I grew up, right? And so um, it's a very different outlook that I had. I was, you know, my childhood, I wouldn't have traded for anything. You know, I really was so fortunate to have that, that land and those values and, um, and being able to, to live on Chiatin when, when Chilliwack was much smaller and grew up in, on Chiatin when we were really that, that last community before we went up Promontory and there wasn't a lot going on at Promontory at the time. Um, so we used to have cows that came down in my yard. I mean, cause there was farms up on Promontory, right? So a very different, and they would walk, literally walk down Promontory Hill. So it's a very different outlook. Now, if, if anybody walks down Promontory Road, I, you know, I fear they'd be run over pretty quick, right? Cause now the, the mass development that's gone on, not only on Chiacton, but around Chiacton. So it's, um, it's completely changed our, our, our landscape. <clears throat> But economic development has been key to our, our success. You know, in the, in the nineties, Chiacton was, I hate using these words because I dependent on government funding because, um, you know, dependent seems like it's, you know, that, that, that big, that dad kind of overlooking patriarchal uh, view that Indian Act uh, has done to f- so many communities that we are 90% dependent on, on government funding and 10% dependent on own source revenue. Now that has flipped and we are, you know, well over 90% dependent on own source revenue and less than 10% dependent on government funding. And that's not a dependency on government funding. Those are simply flow through dollars that, um, that any municipality or any government is entitled to. So uh, economic development has enabled us to do that, to, to really meet the needs of the community through programming and services. And, um, you know, a lot of our taxation and revenue, we pour directly back into the community. Um, you know, we've been able to do projects for the membership and invest in culture, invest in health and well-being. So, um, you know, like I said before, it's kind of a double-edged sword. With with progress comes with development and economic development uh, comes more programming for the membership and supports. But it also takes away from that, that childhood that I grew up knowing and loving and being a part of and and really benefiting from. You know, I, I think I really did benefit from having um, <clears throat> that that kind of quieter lifestyle and low, uh, growing up, being able to access the land and, and have that imagination and, and really um, learn an appreciation for the land. Yeah. yeah, I'm very interested to get into this because it it's so complicated and I don't think that it's acknowledged enough that yeah. Indigenous communities are really caught between a rock and a hard place yeah. when it comes to we want to get our members out of poverty, we want them to yep. be able to think longer term, we want them to be able to family plan in a meaningful way where there's always a push back against that. Like when I think of the pipelines, I feel like the part that never gets acknowledged is that a lot of these indigenous communities are utilizing the pipeline revenue to try and get their members out of poverty. So it's a fight between two different ideas. Like you could judge a community for taking on the pipeline and say they don't care about climate change, but they're actually caring about poverty and trying to help their members and support them in long-term planning. And so I find that this is an important conversation because it gets to the root of some of the largest controversies I think Canada's seen with our relationship with Indigenous people. So I'm interested to know a little bit more about how the Save On, how that whole development kind of came about. And then if you can tell us a bit about Base 10. Yeah, absolutely. So the Save On Foods Development Act 
actually, uh, really progressive leaders back in the day. So that's something I think Chiakin's been really blessed with is having uh, progressive forward-thinking thinking leaders. Um, Better Crossing Plaza, the Save on Foods shopping center. You know, I have to give a lot of kudos to Grand Chief Joe Hall for his vision with that as well. And and there's a, a particular group that we've worked with um, since the 90s uh, called the Gulf Pacific Group. And in particular, um, Bruce Russell and the late Ralph uh, Patterson. Uh, two partners from Gulf Pacific were really visionaries for their time in the 90s and, and saw uh, Indigenous communities not as an asset to them, but saw it as a an, a, an opportunity to support Indigenous economic development. So Joe Hall and Bruce Russell really worked on this this idea, because in the 90s, uh, we were governed by ISC, right, and had these policies and procedures that were dictated to us by Indigenous Services Canada. And saying that they, you know, they wouldn't really allow the development for the purpose of economic development back in the, in the 90s and up until, you know, recent. So they worked around that where they leased the, the land to Gulf Pacific Group. And after the development was done, you know, checked and upfront of the cost for the development and the assets. After the development is done, Bruce Russell and the Gulf Pacific Group leased it back to Chiacton for a dollar so that we worked our way around the, the Indian Act system in order to achieve our economic development goals. So in hindsight, that was probably what, that was the biggest milestone for Chiacton to kickstart us in economic development. That enabled us to build a new sports facility. That enabled us to build a new Chiacton Hall. Um, and that enabled us to invest in the program called the Community Assistance Benefits Program because we in, in, instilled a, a Chiacton sales tax. So <clears throat> there's 5% on all goods and services in the shopping center uh, when it comes to gas, tobacco, and alcohol. So that revenue goes directly back to our membership. 100% of that revenue annually goes back to our membership through a community assistance benefits package um, that enables our membership to access funds for um, health, dental, optometry, you know, f- funeral assistance, sports grants, uh, and really has a package that our membership can access to help support their needs. So, you know, that's a good example of what that, you know, that forward thinking, that development has enabled us to do it. It really did kickstart us um, in this development, this development world. And you see a lot of like, there's Iron Horse, Base 10, Skynest, there's, there's all Malloway Village, there's all these developments going on, on Chiacton. And they're not all Chiacton-owned developments. <clears throat> the only one that is um, a Chiacton-owned or shared development is Base 10. That's shared between Chiacton, Yakakuyas, and Skalkeo. So that was through a litigation case that we got those 30 acres back from, from the government. It was the old Canadian Forces bases um, land that we were able to, to, to negotiate back from the government. When was that? That was done in 2000, I think it concluded in 2017. Oh, wow. Um, and that was 20 years of uh, Grand Chief Joe Hall, you know, fighting and pushing back and going to court and uh, 20 years to, to get that land back. And, um, and so it was a good, uh, you know, hard fight. And then, um, yeah, it was it was definitely interesting to be a part of. Because I remember that spot just kind of being yeah. oddly undeveloped in this, yeah. like you're on your way to GW Graham or you're passing yeah. through and you kind of see this random area that's completely undeveloped. So yeah. it's interesting to kind of get the backstory there. Yeah. What has it been like to watch your membership be able to think longer term or what have the benefits been of economic development that you've gotten to see from being a child to now and seeing 
like perhaps longer term thinking and planning. Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of benefits that we've we've had. You know, first and foremost is that that cab program is just fantastic, right? That's enabled so many of us to to do activities and uh, that we wouldn't have been able to do. And uh, but the other pieces are, are, are sports facilities. That was a huge thing for all of our membership as well. And um, but even that progress and that, that investment in education has been huge for us as well. And so it really. You know, it's given us the ability to to come together as a community because we have the the, the venues to do so. And uh, you know, we use our hall uh, quite a bit. Or pre-COVID, we used our hall quite a bit for community gatherings and coming together to build that sense of community. So I think, in a way, that economic development has enabled us to to come together more as a community. Has enabled us to 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 build that sense of community, which is something that I'm so passionate about. Is is building that sense of community. So for me. It's been a, a huge benefit to me that that economic development has really um, enabled so many of us to to pursue our dreams, to pursue what we want to do, and to live a healthy lifestyle. Right, because yeah. uh, Shiacton was one of the first, right, to yeah. be able to do that. Squala was, I think, shortly after, yeah. but that was one of the pioneers in yeah. the Fraser Valley. What has the funeral process been like and being able to have funds for that? Because yeah. um, for those listeners who don't know, like Indigenous funerals are like a community that yeah. really comes together. And I think that that's very contrasted by European society yeah. and how it's very small, very family, very just like a few people, not, not usually big events. But that's usually a huge get together for people and there's a lot of costs yeah. to that and i think that it's difficult um at least for my community and the other uh, communities yeah. i know to be able to put on the events that they want to so what has that been like yeah so i mean it's <sighs> funerals are always tough right like it's it's a really tough time and this last year and a half has been extremely tough for our community uh with some of the deaths that we've had uh to try to gather in a safe way so that funds just really allows the families to uh not to have to worry about the financial burden of, of a family member or a loved one passing when, you know, we'll pay the funeral home directly so that our members don't have to worry about that. And um, we'll pay catering directly or whatever that looks like. So our members just don't have submit the invoice and we'll, we'll take care of it. Right. And I think it just takes away that stress, that burden of, um, you know, how do I, how do I afford to give my loved one the, the proper send off, you know, in a culturally safe and significant way. Um, it is expensive. You know, that's the reality of, of who, you know, our current, society is that you know the traditional practices of, of funerals aren't you know aren't as, as easy to pull off as maybe they weren't w- once were right so us being able to enable our members to, to access those funds I think it, it just lessens the burden and the blow of losing someone you love and being able to focus on your family and what's important for gathering as a family as a community and, and coming together to support each other through losing someone you've lost rather than having to to have a fundraiser to to pay for a funeral, right? Like it's it's so sad when you have to see that that you know families are and, and I it's unfortunate having to see families fundraise to to send a loved one to the other side and and it's a reality though, right? Like it's such a reality for so many of our communities and um and luckily, you know, us as Stalo people, we we come together and that's what we do, right? And so um we're there for each other and I think, you know, we're fortunate enough to have that that cultural that those teachings to to really um when someone's in need or some someone needs the help that we step up and and we come together absolutely and i want to move a little bit forward into what it was like for you to become chief and what who asked you to run you mentioned that people asked you to run what was that whole process like I was young. I was 26, right? And I was still in uh, obviously working at Yothmeath in in social work and um 
I was liking what I was doing at Yothmeath as well. I was doing guardianship, guardianship social work. Uh, and I remember it was a few of our Chacton Advisory Committee members who said, um, you know, they, they want to put my name forward to nominate me. And at first I said, no. I said, no, I'm too young. Uh, there's, there's no way. Like I thought maybe one day I'll, I, I, and I, you know, I wrote this in essays and stuff that one day I'd, I'd want to give back to my community and, and serve my community in some way, shape or form. In my back of my mind, I thought, you know, one day it'd be pretty cool to be a, a chief, maybe when I'm retired, right? Or something to give back to the community. And uh, so when I got asked at 26, I, I was a bit taken aback and I thought, no way, like there's no way I'm way too young. Uh, but after talking with some of our, our members and, and elders and a few of our community members, it was just it was like, okay, well, all right, let's do this. So I went to the, the nomination ceremony and I think my my exact words when I got asked to accept the nomination was, yeah, let's do this. Like really just really not knowing what I was getting myself into. So uh, you fast forward, I think it was six weeks or something like that through the nomination process and get to the election night. And, you know, I did my research. I've always been somebody who likes to do their homework. And so I dove into into a bit of what's, you know, going on in the day-to-day of Chiac. And I've always been involved in the community. So I had an idea of what, you know, what, services we provide and maybe some gaps that we've we've had but i was never on council i was never in you know never worked for the band i did some some summer programs with the band but i never really was involved in the day-to-day band operations so come election night yeah i i won by you know a pretty good healthy healthy amount of votes so immediately i had to resign from my my job and there's no handbook on how to be chief so really it's this you go in and, and figure it out luckily i had some awesome uh, support networks that I was able to tap into, one being Chief David Jimmy, and uh, and to understand, you know, where do I have to be? What do I have to do? And, you know, it took about six months to really just learn, learn and understand what this role is all about. And um, yeah, it was definitely an interesting process to be 27, like just 27. I was turned 27 at Mar- on March 25th and April 1st, I was elected in. So uh, being so young, it was definitely a learning experience, but I can say without a doubt that um, you know, I was meant to do this. Absolutely was meant to do this. Uh, I think, you know, my life has kind of built me up to be in this position. And, and I, I just really, you know, the creator obviously had a purpose for me. And, can, yeah. can you tell us about what the day-to-day role looks like and what yeah. some of those conversations were? Because I think for a lot of people, they hear the word chief, but they don't really know, is it like a mayor? Is it like an MLA? Yeah. What is the, what, where or they it? ask, is it, is that a full-time job? Exactly. You know, and, or what do you do? Right. Yeah. So I get that. I hear it all the time and it's, it's more than full-time. Like it's, you know, 24 seven, basically. Right. You got to be answering text messages, phone calls, Facebook messages, emails, you know, phone calls. And, um, uh, but it's, you know, a lot of meetings, a lot of representing, uh, being a, a spokesperson for the community, for the membership, uh, being the political spokesperson. But also I mentioned before, it's, you know, I, I come with this almost this nose in, fingers out approach to um, to Chiac and business. So we have a fantastic GM, fantastic managers, but I work very closely with each manager, each department, our GM uh, to understand, you know, what's going on in each department. Is there areas that we need to think as leadership strategically and how to move us forward as an organization? So can you tell us a yeah. little bit about the department? Yeah. So we have our uh, property and public works department, which is our housing and, and public works. So those two departments, I could see branching, branching off into two standalone departments uh, in the near future because of our, our investment into membership housing. Uh, we have our programs. 
uh, supervisor, uh, which is growing into its very own large department as well. And especially post COVID, I'm really looking forward to the programs we're going to be able to provide again. Uh, we have our lands department, which is, you know, oversees all of our, our lands, you know, development permits, developments on reserve, you know, even our member owned uh, developments and member housing issuing development permits and, and upholding our land code and our laws. And uh, we have our finance and taxation department, which uh, we have a director of finance, Lori Fallis. She's fantastic. Um, and they oversee all of our financial operations and, and work with budgeting with each of our managers. Uh, then we have an admin supervisor who oversees all of our admin functions. And we have our uh, general manager, James Tebby. So um, each, you know, each fun each department definitely functions independently, but we try to work together as a management team to make sure that, um, you know, we work collaboratively and, and work as an organization in a good way. Wow, that is yeah. a lot. But please continue. Yeah. What is it like to try and manage that? And what are some of these meetings like? Yeah, it's a lot to manage the day. Like the day to day is like, I, like I said, I kind of have that nose in fingers out. So I know what know what's going on. Uh, but I try not to, to micromanage, right? And definitely there's been times where I've had to slap my own hand and say, Derek, get out of there. Like, that's not your role. But uh, so that's just one of the, the many facets that, that of the role of being chief. The other side of it is I have to go, you know, I'm one of the board members for the Chukwaiak tribe, uh, one of the, uh, you know, members of the Stolen Nation Chiefs Council. I've uh, one of the uh, political reps, the provincial reps for the First Nations Health Authority. Um you know, you get asked, I'm one of the part of the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, I'm one of the national members in the First Nations Finance Authority. Um, you know, I'm heavily involved in the Child Youth Health Center with Dr. Robert Lees and Stephen Esau and, um, and all these really awesome, you know, social minded people in Chilliwack. So, uh, you know, day to day, like, and that's just probably skimming the surface of all the meetings that, that I attend and, and go to. And, um, so, yeah, it just, you know, it's amazing. Each day can be so different in this role. You know, a, a good example is, you know, I could go from chairing our economic development board of directors in the morning and then going to a, uh, a social focused meeting in the afternoon and then finishing off in the, in the night. Like tonight, I, I go to the longhouse to meet with our longhouse committee to, to go over a grand opening uh, plan for our longhouse because we've been unable to do that because of COVID. <clears throat> So days are so different, which makes it so good though, like being able to, to have that, those days that, um, you're like, wow, like I, I did this yesterday, but the next day is completely different. And it really broadens your, your scope, broadens your knowledge. Um, it's, it's tough sometimes to, to literally, especially with zoom, you know, you like they've, I find with COVID zoom is stacked meetings a lot. So I could go from, you know, days like I've meeting from eight to nine, nine to 11, 11 to 12, one to two, right? And, and it just goes back to back and having to flick the switch from meeting to meeting that's, you know, so very different. It's challenging sometimes because you really have to catch yourself up. Where am I at, you know, in, in this thought process? Because you have to think very differently from meeting to meeting. Yeah, that is yeah. so true. And um, I want to get into all those different roles that you mentioned yeah. and all those different positions. But I hear a lot, and I'm really trying to discourage this, this whole mentality of just be happy or do whatever makes you happy. Yeah. Because I think that there's such meaning uh, that can be found in filling all these roles and yeah. playing such a different role. And like, it sounds like your days are like hectic and that you're, you're in so many different places and you're taking on so much responsibility in your community. Yeah. And so I'm interested to know, is that fulfilling? Does that, does that make you feel full at the end of the day that you've been able to play such an integral role in your community it does like it really does you know and i think the biggest thing for me is and this is what i really miss is seeing that impacts in our community and coming to community events and being able to see our members 
um, thrive and, and, and really benefit from some of the programs we do. Um, and seeing people who, you know, may have been struggling in, in the last couple of years, uh, but then seeing them in a place where they just look so happy and, and healthy and, and thinking that maybe I played a, a little part in that, or maybe we did as Chiak and played a little part in that, that really is fulfilling to me. And, and even being a part on that, those bigger level meetings and, uh, you know, something that the First Nations Finance Authority, we were part of that, that huge deal back east where, uh, the First Nations took over the, uh, one of those, the, the lobster fishing and the fishing back east. And it was, you know, three quarter, a quarter of a billion dollar acquisition that, um, and being a part of that, that being able to review those documents and approve a loan of, you know, excess of 250 million to allow a First Nations community to really be a part of the economy on the East Coast. Yeah. And rather than having to work around and go to the government and, and beg for for licenses and whatever, no, they decided to take over that that market. And being able to be a part of that absolutely is pretty a pretty cool thing to be a part of. And you know, and that that's just one example of of so many that you look back on and think, you know, when you reflect, it's pretty cool to see some of the stuff we've done. I've done outside of the scope of Chiacton, but then I look at the last couple of years of what we've been able to do at Chiacton. And, you know, we do an annual report every year back to our membership. And I always take that time to reflect on the year, reflect on our accomplishments. And um, it's pretty amazing to look back in the last four years and see what we've done for, yeah. our, for our membership. You know, so many investments in, in culture. We've carved traditional canoes. We've built the longhouse. we built the new social health building. Um, and, you know, we're in the midst of, of building a 23-unit affordable membership housing uh, development that took four years of going to two levels of government uh, cons. I, they're probably, they were probably sick of me, uh, but I'd go twice a year at the very least to both the province and the feds, present our updated designs, get them excited about this project, just tell a story. Every time I went, I'd tell a story about the positive impacts that this housing development is going to have for our membership and what we're trying to achieve. And, uh, and you know, it paid off. You know, we've been able to secure a lot of funding for these projects we've done because of that relationship building. And, you know, I'm a huge believer in that. So yeah, looking back and seeing what we've done for Chiacton and what I've done, been able to do outside of the, the realm of Chiacton, it's, um, it's always a cool process to reflect back on that. That's awesome. What would yeah. you say to somebody who's like, my dream would be to work from like 10 to two and do nothing and just sit around all day. Like, what would you say to that person? Because yeah. it sounds like you get a lot out of this yeah. and it seems like people are missing the point when they're trying to minimal work possible, yeah. maximum amount of pay, that mindset. Yeah, I mean, it, hey, if you can work 10 to 2 and make a good living, good for you. you know? <laughs> uh, but the reality is that that's, that's not really reality for, for so many people, right? And, and, uh, and is, are you getting the most out of, out of your, your days, your life, and what you want to achieve, right? So, um, you know, I would say you know, maybe get uncomfortable a bit, you know, think about outside of the, your, your comfort zone. If, if you're okay with, with a 10 to two job and, um, then, then so be it. But if you really want to, uh, get uncomfortable and look outside of the, your bubble, right. And then think about a bit outside of your bubble, then uh, I can, I can say with, with, you know, pretty, pretty confidently that, um, it'll be worth it. It'd be worth it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Now let's get into some of the roles that you play yeah. um, and let's just go through. You listed a bunch of them. Let's <laughs> just go through them all. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, obviously. Uh, so there's there's a few roles I play in, in Chiact and uh, obviously the chief. I, I chair our economic development board of directors um, outside of Chiact and I'm part of the Chukwuek tribe 
executive and one of the board members for the Chukwuek tribe. Uh, I'm, all, I'm the vice president of the Chukwuek tribe. I also am on the board of directors for the Chilliwack Chamber of Commerce. I'm one of the provincial health reps for the First Nations Health Council and the, the interim chair for the Members Society there. Uh, like I said, I'm one of the board members for the First Nations Finance Authority and the chair of the audit committee there. Um, okay, so your role with the Chilquayuk tribe, yep. did I say that correctly? Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so, you know, a fantastic organization, something that I think uh, all of us who are on the board are really proud of. Uh, you know, we've we've done well in, in both economic development and rights and titles. So we have two separate arms for the Chilquayuk and uh, like I said, one's economic development, the other one is rights and titles based. So, uh, you know, Chief David Jimmy is our the president of the Chilquay tribe. He's the one that takes on a lot more of those day-to-day operations, the negotiations, whatever it might look like. But a lot of our role is really asserting our rights and titles. So as a collective, uh, the Chilquayuk tribe hold our collective rights and titles from seven different communities. So, uh, you know, Chiacton being one of them. And, uh, yeah, so we work collaboratively on, you know, if land dispositions, if the federal government is disposing of land, then we get involved because it's our, our right that, you know, federal land was supposed to go back to the, the rightful owners, right? So we get involved when it's in our territory to, to step in and, and make sure that, you know, federal government d- doesn't dispose of land without our consultation or, you know, our um, compensation to us as well. So that's a big role we play. We also play a big role in you see the, I'm sure you've, we've heard of the big Bridal Veil Mountain Group project, the gondola, all that that plays in. So then, you know, proponents like that have to come consult with us when it's in our territory. So then we go through various, you know, traditional use studies, you know, environmental studies, archaeological, like all the, you know, these kind of studies to see the impacts on our territory if a project is coming into our traditional territory. And then ultimately we have to go through like a review and approval or denial process of that. So those are a few of the functions uh, that we at the Chokwag do. It's um, like I said, it's a really awesome organization to be a part of, and um, we do a lot of cool work. Like one of the examples is uh, there were some burial mounds found down Chilliwack Lake Road that uh, is obviously some of our ancestors, and uh, those were discovered. And so we we've been through a lengthy process of actually retaining that land back and and making sure we protect that land so that nobody can go in and and develop or or dig up those burial mounds because there are ancestors there. So when was that discovered? Uh, a couple of years ago now. Wow. About three years ago, I think it's been a length about a three four year process that we've been in with the the government on uh, the province and negotiating a you know a, a settlement or or making sure that we protect that land. So uh, we're just finalizing it and really awesome process and um, well not awesome. It's been challenging, uh, but. Uh, yeah, it's just something that we're really proud of and being able to protect those those burial mounds. How old are they? Or oh, I can't remember like the exact dating. Th- you know, thousands, right? Like a couple, wow. th- like they're old. Yeah. So it's um, it's really cool to be uh, be able to do that and know like we occupied yeah. that that territory and and that's proof that you know we've been there since time immemorial and um, and nobody can say otherwise. Yeah. You know, that's proof that we were here well before anybody else. That is one of the things that I think I've gotten a lot out of this is there's like I grew up with the disconnect from my culture, but being able to hear these stories from Andrew Victor and from Eddie Gardner about 
the relationship with the mountains and thinking like today I can't imagine getting anywhere without Google Maps or yeah. without Apple Maps and thinking that they used to use these stories to be able to remember their locations and yeah. where they were and you would see like the three peaks and you would know the three sister yeah. story and you would have all of this in your mind so you could navigate because like walking places today is so we're not used to it. We're not used to having to travel without a trailhead yeah. that gives us an exact mapping of where we are. And that's how people traveled. And we used the waterways to get around and just understanding that that is how it's been forever. Yeah. And it's only real recent that we've had all these tools to navigate and things have become so much easier to figure out where we are and stuff that we're starting to lose those original stories. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that that's so valuable to hear. Do you have any stories you can share in regards to Chiacton and and your connection with that land, yeah, you know Chiacton tr uh, originally was was river, right? Like the river ran through Chiacton, and that's where like that's why that place of fish weir, that meaning is so uh, you know important to us as well. Is that pretty much uh, Promontory Road was was all the Chilock River, yeah. you know, it ran through it it, uh, and if you can you can actually when when Iron Horse was when they tore down all the trees on Iron Horse, you could see where the uh, river actually ran. You oh, could see that the the dig out. I don't even know ran. if people know that. I don't. We took pictures, like we documented it. We did some archaeological findings. We actually found a pit house wow. on that land, um, and you know, a really cool experience. I learned a lot through that as well. That um, so the ran the, the the river kind of branched off and went up towards, and it, it essentially had these offshoots, and the river ran straight down Vetter Road and out to the Fraser. And our people used to canoe actually from you know the Fraser up basically Vetter Road, and then would get to the the Chilliwack, the river, and it was quite rapid, so they, they couldn't really, you know, canoe up. So they would have to walk up. So that's where Chiacton Stetas, like Stetas is just by uh, the Vetter Bridge, basically. That That's that the meaning of the place of Stetas. And um, so Chiacton played a big part in that. And that pit house, actually, uh, when working with the developer, a lot of developers could say, oh, I'll protect that land, and that's it. Uh, we were really fortunate to work with uh, the diverse development groups who did um, all most of Garrison Crossing, has done River's Edge, and they're now doing Iron Horse on Chiacton. And they, instead of being pushy about only protecting the pit house, they went the opposite and said, well, let's protect a larger area and actually make this more of a, you know, a learning opportunity. And, and of course, they're, you know, probably use a part of their marketing, whatever, but they took a different approach to protect the, that pit house and do an education piece around it and do more of a natural playground around that pit house to encompass a bit more of those, you know, wooden features and a lot more of that, um, you know, a different, different outlook that, that I think a lot of developers would, would have taken. So, uh, pretty cool to know that, you know, our, my, likely my direct ancestors were one of those people that occupied those, that pit house on Chiactal. Yeah, so it's... That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about working with First Nations Health Council? Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic role. I've been there now four months, I think, or something like that. And uh, right away, I got kind of pushed into the in interim chair role for the member society. And uh, it, 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 it's a very uh, intensive role. Uh, it's, it's, it can be busy, uh, but it's, it's pretty cool to be a part of that larger uh, shift in the transformation of the healthcare system for First Nations. Um, you know, I have a big passion for that. I'm no, by no means, I'm, I'm 
an expert in health. But I just find there's so many resources that we can tap into uh, to help guide us in our decision making. And um, I'm really looking forward to what we can do in these next couple of years. It's a three year term. And uh, I, you know, work right, right off the hop. My, my goal is to work very closely with our health directors. They're the ones that know what needs to be you know, what needs change in, in our healthcare system for First Nations people. So, um, yeah, it's, it's more of a political role. That one is definitely more of a political advocacy role. Uh, a lot of work's done in our region. So I'm one of the uh, Fraser Salish uh, regional reps, one of three. That's uh, me, Andrew Victor, and Willie, Willie Charlie. And there's 15 reps across the province. So I'm one of 15. So there's a couple of different tables. There's our regional tables, or sorry, Go back. There's more of our Stalin. I'm the rep for the Stalin Nation Chiefs Council, so I work closely with my Stalin Nation Chiefs Council chiefs and our Stalo Health Director Kaloa, and then work larger at a more regional level, so for the entire Fraser region, and then work at more of a provincial level with the 15 of 15, uh, where we work on you know bigger issues that aren't um, can't be tackled in, in each region or each community. Right. And I'm hoping we can just do a little bit. I know you're not an expert, yeah. neither am I, but on the difference between First Nations Health Authority and how that impacts our communities, because other provinces don't have a, yeah. a provincial health system. Yep. So we're the only province in Canada to have a, a provincial First Nations health system. And uh, it definitely like it's cha there's challenges, of course. I We had this conversation uh, maybe a week or two weeks ago at a, at a meeting is that you know, a lot of there's uh, there's always questions about around you know are we doing the right things or is is are we implementing the right health services? But I had to remind our table again that we're still infants in this health world, right? We're ten years in. Fraser Health has been doing this for 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 decades, right? And so we're still learning the healthcare system and and what works best for us. But I think we've been doing a pretty damn good job so far of of improving health services for our members in our communities. And we're, we're always going to evolve. Like that's the reality of any organization. It's meant to be a living tree. You're meant to always grow and evolve with, with the needs of each community and the needs of each, each region and the province. And, um, so is it ever going to be perfect? No. And I, I, you know, I can fully admit that. Are we trying our, our best to, to make sure we're doing what's best for our communities? Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, we all have the right intentions and we're there because we love, we have a passion for, uh, changing the socioeconomic and health of our, of our members in our communities. And I think just bringing a, a legal lens, the way our court system is set up is where you try and resolve things on the local yeah. level first, and then you work your way up. So you have your Chilliwack court, and then it moves yeah. up to the Supreme Court, and then it moves up to the Court of Appeal, then it moves up to the Supreme Court of Canada. So you don't start with the federal level, yeah. which is what all other provinces have to deal with. They have to go straight to yep. a federal body that, that regulates and tries to guide things. Where here, it's like I've worked with system navigators from uh, First Nations yeah. Health, and that's such a privilege because these people know the landscape of health and how to get access to funding dollars yep. for Indigenous clients and be able to help them navigate the system and make sure that they have the services they need. And I can't even imagine what the world would be like without those individuals. You know, very simple examples. We were able to, at the health authority with the heat waves, our elders are eligible for air conditioners through the First Nations Health Authority, oh, wow. right? So like you wouldn't, if you were bound by the federal um, health regime, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that any other province would have been able to, to really pivot and invest in air conditioners for elders because of the heat wave. So, and, and air purifiers and stuff like that, right? So with the smoke and all that. So uh, yeah, I think it gives us the autonomy to shift when need when we need to. And with COVID, the same thing, we've had to shift 
obviously our priorities through COVID. So, um, and pivot, but I don't think that every, you know, if, if you're having direct funding or services from the, from the federal government, I don't think you would have been able to do that. That yeah. I can't believe that, that you just said that, that there were air conditioners and air purifiers made available because I was, we have air conditioners and air purifiers, but growing up, we didn't. And yeah. that wasn't even a thought in our minds. And just when we were going out, like I was going to the leisure center and I saw kids playing outside in when it was like 11 out of 10 yeah. level smoke. And it was just like heartbreaking to me because I'm like, I'm sure these kids are out there because it's too hot indoors. So they're going outside to try and play and they're paying significant detrimental <clears throat> effects to their health and their lung health. And there's so many consequences and it just felt like that wasn't acknowledged by most people or being discussed or something that was popular on social media or any avenues yeah. that this is something that like you can pay real con you can get lung cancer from inhaling that level of smoke so i'm really grateful to hear that and i didn't even know that about mm -hmm. first nations health authority and i think the other part is the access to counseling is something I don't think many people realize because as a native court worker, I would often say like, oh, do you have any family lineage who've gone through Indian residential schools? We can get you counseling. Yeah. And there isn't a set determined, like you get six weeks of counseling. It's it's open-ended. And so that's a great opportunity for someone to be able to begin to address their personal traumas in a meaningful way that's not in a group that you don't have to share yeah. in some big way that it can be private and you can process that yourself. And I think that that's really where the rubber hits the road and where real difference can be made is when I was able to pull up the sheet from First Nations Health Authority that listed the available counselors yep. in the Fraser Valley and say, you can reach out to any of these people. They accept First Nations Health Authority funding. So all they have to do is put in an application and you're good to go. You choose the counselor. You choose yep. when you want to start. You choose how long you're going to go for and you can start this journey yourself. You just have to let me know how many sessions you've attended or have your counselor send a letter. But this is all for your own benefit yep. and you can do this at your own pace. And I think that that is so freeing for so many people who feel put on a schedule. Like if there's a treatment program and you have to attend 10 weeks and you have to attend each week, and <clears> if you don't attend all the weeks, then you're kicked out of the program, that that can be discouraging for totally. somebody who's struggling day to day with finances yep. and with having shelter and stuff like that, that that access to just one counselor, your terms for your length of time is such a difference for people. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I'm a huge believer in counseling. Like I myself, I've been through several years of counseling as well. And uh, so we've taken that FNHA program and actually, because there tends to be some wait lists as well. So, uh, which is unfortunate, but then we decided as Chiacton to actually, uh, we've contracted out three counselors as well to tap into those, those. And that's, you know, part of my passion is investing in social and health programming and what I'm trying to do more at Chiacton as well. And so now we've actually almost taken that program in house. So now we manage it. We have a, a staff member who, uh, if members want to see a different clinician who aren't you know, inept or uh, don't know the FNHA process, we have a staff member who walks them through that. Wow. So we try to break down as many barriers to, to our members to receive counseling as possible. We've set up a little office at one of our sports field buildings for the counselors to come. So our members are have a safer place to come and, and meet a counselor. And, and they know that they can come to a Chiact and safe space to, to talk to somebody. And so, you know, and, but if our members don't want to access those three counselors, then of course we support them, whoever they want to see. And, you know, I, I think there, FNHA, there's some parameters around. If you have historical um, impacts from residential school, yeah, your your window of counseling services are up to like, I think, 60 hours or something like that. If you 
don't identify as impacts from residential school, which I think every single Indigenous person does, then they allocate, I think, 22 hours every year. But if there's any shortfalls, then we've we've made a mandate at Chiatin to, to cover those, wow. in, uh, those differences. And if, but those are for only status members, right? They're for FNHA, which is unfortunate so far. Uh, but we have a lot of members of Chiatin who are non-status as well. So we've, so that's why we created this program and so that it's not just status members who can access that it's all of our members who can access counseling services and we'll uh we'll cover the bill for the members who are non-status from chiac and um for the counseling services wow and that kind of dovetails in can you tell us a little bit about the um the health center that you guys had the youth health center that you guys yeah i know that's you know i uh that's again working with dr robert lees and uh yeah i can't say enough good things about that man and um he's the work he's doing and really is forward thinking so we he approached me uh, maybe about a year and a half or maybe two years ago now um, and just asked about, you know, the possibility of how do we get a youth health center on the south side of, of Chilliwack? There's one in at Stalo. Um, there's one at the Neighborhood Learning Center at, out of Chilliwack Senior. But there wasn't one on this, like, the direct south side of Chilliwack. So when he approached me, I said, well, hey, we got the office space. Come come use Chiactons. Um, free of charge. Just, just use it. We'll... You know, none of our staff complained about we opened it up at three o'clock. So all of our staff got to go home an hour early uh, on every Tuesday. So nobody complained about that. I mean, why not? And also we're supporting a good cause and also breaking down the barriers to First Nations to access counseling and clinical and health services and mental health services uh, for free in a place that they recognize. You know, they can you can walk into the sign up top says Chiactal you know, lands and governance office. And, um, you know, it's a very welcoming space. So it just creates that comfort level for so many indigenous, uh, youth. And, you know, it's been successful. We've had an increase in, in drop-ins, increase in clientele who access the services. And, uh, again, like I, I can't say enough about the program itself. I think it's low, it's low barrier and meets the needs. Every door is the right door when you walk through those, those doors. And, um, you know, the, the clinicians, the counselors, the, they're just fantastic people. And I can't say enough about the service they provide to, uh, all of our community, indigenous and non-indigenous. And it's, um, I always come from this lens of inclusivity rather than exclusivity. You know, I, I think, <clears throat> yes, there's a time and place to have programs specific to just our indigenous population. Uh, but I also believe there's a time, there's a lot of times and places where we create an e inclusive environment for services for all to, to really um, provide a level of services that, you know, I think historically, that's what we would do, right? We would do that. We would help others. And that's who we are as, as Stalo and Holmuth people is, is we're here to help. And, and I think that's something that is just so fantastic about this program. And yeah, I, I just can't say enough good things about it. That really leads yeah. into my question, though, about reconciliation, mm -hmm. because I do think that it is a both sides thing. And I think that the important thing to understand is I think Indigenous culture has so much to offer that yeah. I think that too often it's used as like lip service that like, oh, yeah, let them like paint and let them yeah. do their drawings and stuff. And it's like it's so much more than that. And I think that the one that I've constantly brought up is the example of elders that I think that Western society really has a problem looking at their seniors Absolutely. as resources, as knowledge keepers, as people to go to to learn more yeah. and to have a greater understanding. And Rebecca and I were just looking at um, a website that was explaining that right now at the top of almost everybody in North America's prior list is more money 
But the thing that kind of dropped off and people stopped caring about is having a philosophy of morality, of having mm. an understanding of community, of values. Yeah. And I think that that's when you cut off the elders, when you cut off that feeling of connection that the grandparents guide the, the young children and yeah. help them develop. I think when you start to cut that out, people kind of get lost and they have less of a direction on what is the meaning of life. And yeah. I think that that's often answered when you're helping others and when you're supporting others that that meaning of life is, is answered. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a key piece to me, maybe I'll digress and come back. A key piece to me of reconciliation is it's education right? And understanding and educating yourself. But going back to that, you know, that notion of, of family and elders and um, yeah, the importance of, of that family unit. And I think that those, those teachings instill em empathy in so many of, of us as Indigenous people. And I heard, a, I heard another snippet of a podcast talking about the shift in leadership uh, needs to go to more empathetic leaders rather than you mentioned like that bottom dollar. Everybody's biggest priority is making, making more money, going farther in life and, you know, putting themselves up on this pedestal when really that's not how I think in, in order for us to go in a direction that us as a society need to, we need more empathetic leaders. We need more members who understand humans, who know um, that there's challenges in life. And I think a lot of that for me derives from who I was, you know, how I was raised. I was raised very much when I reflect back in a traditional sense where I had my aunts and uncles on either side of me with my cousins. And we all grew up basically as one big family. You know, we'd see each other every day pretty much. And we had, you know, especially my one, my aunt and uncle, my cousin were literally about 75 meters from us. We had two moms, two dads, two fridges, you know, like this is their two households. This was how we were raised. And I think that really instilled so many values that I look back on and maybe who I am today. It may be the leader I am today, but then you circle back to like this reconciliation notion of, and I think, like you said, there's so much to be learned from the indigenous culture and our traditions that can be um, incorporated into mainstream societies, services, and programs. And I think truly it would enhance so many of these programs and services. Um, and coming from that lens that we've, we have to offer, I think would just benefit, um, yeah, the systems that we, that we all are to a certain extent still oppressed and dictated by, um, when it comes to social health, you know, well-being, that there needs to be this mentality shift and taking in some of this, the, the values that us as Indigenous people hold. And where that begins is education, is understanding. And I think, to me, is the simplest form of reconciliation is that if you can take the time to educate yourself and understand a bit of the histories of um, Indigenous people in Canada, but also, you know, globally, you can see Indigenous people across this this planet have been oppressed and and have been attempted to be assimilated since you know since contact in any of these yeah. any of these uh, countries and uh, regions so for us here i think the biggest piece is education understanding so that you don't judge you know you think twice before you see an indigenous person who's struggling and you think instead of thinking well there's another indigenous person just living off the system which we hear so many times maybe you think differently as I wonder what that person went through. You know, I wonder what the impacts of residential school has had on that individual's life. Did they have parents who knew how to parent? You know, did they come from a household that was filled with trauma and abuse? And, and maybe they're there because of reasons that you probably can't even fathom. You know, some of the, the trauma that so many of our Indigenous people have gone through that 
like so many people can't even compare to or can't even you know and, and it's okay that that some people haven't gone through that and it's perfectly okay but at least take the time to understand that some people haven't lived the life that the privilege that so many of us have yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah. And I think that you can lay out a timeline of like my grandmother goes to Indian residential school. She gets confidence, um, a sense of self all destroyed yeah. from her her sense of self. And then she has children and she's not able to give those children the same love and affection and support and kindness and culture and understanding that a person who didn't go through all that trauma and never had a counselor to talk yeah. to about it. She has children children those children struggle to again identify with the culture because there's this huge disconnect now and then they have children and that's now today me and likely yourself where we're now realizing and seeing the lineage upwards and go how can we fix this but there's been two generations of people who have not had the access to the internet and access to counseling and access to resources and access to information that our other generations totally. had and being able to understand that that wasn't their preference if they could have gone to counseling if that was a resource that was provided likely they would have way sooner than yeah. now and just being able to have that understanding of where people are at and it's very similar to a world war ii survivor who's living in our society now who's struggled to share mm-hmm. the traumas that they've gone through it's very similar and we can understand where veterans don't want to share their war yeah. stories and so we have to have that same level of empathy to people who went through Indian residential school where, again, we now know that children were regularly murdered, put put away, and not taken care of in meaningful ways. And I think that that's an important piece to bring in. And I think that sharing that with the broader community and allowing these conversations to happen is so important because what I've been getting a lot of is a lot of European people saying like, we don't know who to talk to because a lot of people aren't ready to talk. And it's not like that's the first thing you can say to an indigenous person when you meet them. So it's, I think we're at this time where like, we know the conversation needs to take place. And that's what I'm trying to do here is give people access to knowledge like yourself, where they can start to think about the issues and they don't have to email you and you have hundreds of people emailing you saying, Hey, let's meet for a coffee so I can understand things. Yeah, yeah the internet's at your fingertips, yeah. right? There's so many resources about and uh, the, the history of residential school that, you know, type it in in Google and you can find out a lot more information. And, and you're right, like, how can you walk up to anybody and say, hey, did you go to residential school and do you want to tell me about it? Like, that is, you know, I mean, yeah, so I think they, like, the simplest form is just education and really, you know, trying to build more understanding and yeah. empathy and, yeah. Can you tell us about the um, Stolo Chiefs Council Mm -hmm. and can you lay out the framework for what Stolo is? Because it's, again, one of these very complex um, topics because there's a political aspect, there's a governance (laughs) aspect, um, there's just being Stolo as a person. So you got a, how much time do you got? No, (laughs) Uh, you may need a a Venn diagram to figure this one out. But the, uh, yeah, so Stolo Nation is, you know, 24, four bands, right? 24 communities make up Stalo Nation. Of that, there's there's been splits along the way of, you know, back in the 90s, there were, the Stalo Nation was a collective of the 24 bands. Some went independent. Then there was a split. Now there's the Stalo Tribal Council and the Stalo Nation Chiefs Council and independence. So uh, if my memory serves me correct, I believe there's 10, 10 of us at the Stolen Nation Chiefs Council, 10 communities. There's eight or so at the Stolen Nation Council. Can you tell Tribal us Council. which ones there are? Yeah, so it's Chiactin, uh, Skalkeo, Yakaquias, Squayala, Achalitz, uh, I believe it's Shway Village, Squaw, 
um, Coquapult, uh, Matt Squee, and LeCamel. I think I got them all. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I think Suwali's kind of on both. Suwali's is kind of funny. Like we we don't we don't close our door to any community who wants to come meet with us either, right? So I think Suwali is part of the Stolen Tribal Council, but they also come to some our Stolen Nation Chiefs Council meetings. So it's not like if you're affiliated with one, you're not allowed to go. For us, at least, you're not allowed to go to the other. But then there's the Stolen Tribal Council, which is more of the communities in the east. Um, and then there's several independent bands who have decided not to affiliate with the Stala Nation Chiefs Council or the Stala Tribal Council. And I believe there's, uh, I don't know, six, five or six of, of, of those bands, which is like Stalis, uh, Yale, I'm pretty sure like Katesy, Quantlin, um, are all part of the independent bands. So, uh, yeah, it's a complex makeup, uh, but we all have the 21 bands or signatories or have an interest in the Kokolitsa grounds. Same 21 have an interest in the St. Mary's and Pequalis grounds and mission there. So a lot of what we do at the Stolen Nation Chiefs Council is more just bigger political issues. We come together to discuss, you know, that, that's where I report to on health. So that's a lot of what we do at the Stolen Nation Chiefs Council is around health initiatives. And that's where we do a lot of engagement around. And I'm trying to do more engagement around uh, making sure that I work with the chiefs and the communities on how to improve health services, but you know, it, it's, it's definitely more of a before big, you know, AFNs like assembly first nations or big political meetings when there's votes for elections for like national chiefs or stuff like that. Typically we, we try to come together, have a discussion on, you know, concerns or topics or resolutions or whatever that we, we need to support or, you know, or, or oppose or whatever it might look like. So it's more of a political body more than anything. But then we also oversee, we're the oversight body for the Stala Service Agency. Uh, there's a board of directors for the Stala Service Agency, but they report to us as well. So um, that's basically the, the main functions of the Stala Nation Chiefs Council. And um, yeah, I always have this, you know, idea. And yeah, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. I would love to see the Stala Nation unite again in one way, shape or form, not in a way of like, you know, I think a lot of people are, are worried that if we unite, we, t we may, you know, take away jobs for chiefs or whatever it might look like. When I think there's just an opportunity for us to work together on larger political issues and, and be strong in our, in our, you know, Stalo historically has always been one of the strongest political ent entities. When Stalo in the 90s, 80s and 90s, when they walk into a room, people knew we were there, right? And so uh, I love to get back to that, that point where we come together and, uh, in unity and work work more collectively on on bigger political issues. Right, and can you contrast that with the tribal council? Yeah, so the tribal council is is oh, you mean Stalin tribal council? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I don't know. Like that's where you know that's where that disconnect is. Right. Where we do want to start to try to work closer together, but again, that's where a bit of the disconnect is. Is you know where can we begin to to carve out those relationships together again. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about the landscape uh, from your perspective of the different communities that you see? Because I think that that is where people get confused and, and lost on what's going on and why is there this disconnect? How does this all come about? Uh, you know, I think it came, came about it, it, the original, I think the original split, it just um, political views and really it, uh, um, it just there's some really strong minded leaders and uh, it, it just came about in, in a time where, uh, politics weren't as, they were a little messier. And I think, um, I think a lot of it has to do even with that, that divide and conquer mentality that the government has always, you know, forced indigenous people to 
to work through. You know, they've always dangled funding in front of everybody and really said, well, you communities fight amongst each other. And that's, I think a lot of it has derived from that is where, and that's where now like there was tribal council funding or there still is. And, and so that's like this funding, I think a lot of it comes back to uh, that divide and conquer mentality that the government's always instilled in First Nations communities is that there's a certain amount of funding, but only a few of you can get it. So fight amongst yourself for it. And I really do think that a lot of the divides have come from that mentality. And, um, and it's unfortunate. It really is. Well, because you don't see that with first, like Fraser Health, they don't have to compete with other exactly. like, health authorities in that, order to get basic funding. That's and, Fraser Health. That's it. Yeah. There's no other entity, right? Yeah. And I think that that just that goes into where I feel like there's this confusion among my European friends where they're like, well, we don't know what First Nations people want. And it's because we've got so many different small communities. And I think David Jimmy did a really good job of explaining the benefit, but also the, the problems that that brings, which is that you have a chief and council yeah. for so many communities oh, yeah. and getting everybody on the same page is extra challenging. And so I'm interested yeah. to hear what your thoughts are. On that. Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, Probably not everybody would agree with me on this, but I think at one in one at one day it'd be fantastic to come together as a Chukwik and and have you know one council system. And maybe I'm not going to be the most popular person for saying that, uh, but I could totally see us one day, you know, coming together and, and unifying and and you know having one council system because I think in BC there's 203 First Nations. I can't remember there was a, there's about 2,000 delegates of chief and council systems in, in BC alone for 203 communities. I mean, that's a lot of, of people elected in uh, to govern our communities. And it is difficult because the reality of it is that you look at the bands like Chiatin, Squayala, you know, you look at even like, you know, uh, Squamish, Tawasin, big communities who have done very well. So yeah, you get to this point where you don't want to share. You know, and that's the reality is that like so many communities have built up and I get it. Same with Chiacton from our perspective. We spent a lot of resources and time building uh, Chiacton as an organization and a community to get to where we are. So the idea that we would have to share those resources and share those revenues with other communities is tough for some of our members and our leadership to really wrap their heads around. Um, but is that like, is that the right thing to do? Right. Is that the right thing to do when historically we were Chukwik, we weren't Chiak and we weren't Yakakuyas, we weren't Skalkale. So um, yeah, there's so many of these small communities that um, I feel bad for because they just, they aren't in the same position that we are and at no fault of their own. Right. It's yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And I think that even if people want to disagree with your point about the uniting and having one yeah. chief council, even if they want to disagree, they need to come to the table with a better solution to the problem. Yeah. Because for me, I see the exact problem you're describing, which is I feel like once you have that economic development, once you have money coming in that isn't from the government, yep. that you, you know is coming in consistently, that's revenue generating, you're able to think longer term. You're mm -hmm. able to build community plans. You're able to think about seven generations ahead totally. and I really feel like um, with my community and I might get flack for saying this we received um, finances because of the seabird right. island settlement yep. we received each member received a fair bit of money and to me none of that money went into economic development yeah. rebuilding the community making sure that long term we're able to think yeah. about seven generations ahead and so you have this deep 
disconnect between communities like yourself that are becoming self-sustaining and becoming just like a prom, like a, just like a regular community yeah. um, to everybody else where like I know people know the name Shiact and I know that they have that respect for that community and they have that same respect as for Chilliwack or for Abbotsford or for Agassiz yep. and that's missing when nobody knows the name of my community. Nobody knows what I'm talking about when I describe it and I know my members aren't doing as well as I'd like to see them doing yeah. and again that is of no fault of their own and when they chose to vote for $15,000 cash in their pockets rather than putting that into the band, I totally get why. Because yeah. it's hard to see what that's gonna do. Oh, I'm just gonna give all that money to the band. How is that gonna help Back me? Back to chief and council, they're gonna, what are they gonna do with it? Yeah, exactly, exactly so yeah. what has that been like for you yeah. to have perhaps a more, a community that's able to think forward yeah. into the future where I feel like my community, they, they, they don't get the opportunity to say, what is our 20 year plan? Yeah. yeah. I think it's a fantastic question. And, you know, for, for us, we do a very small, you know, distribution every year for Christmas, 600 bucks to all of our members and 800 bucks to our elders. Um, so could we do more? Probably. But is it an area that we feel is the best bang for a buck? Probably not. Right. Like you said, is $15,000, you know, I, the reality is I hate to, to see the negative impacts of that as well, yeah. right? And that's the reality of, I'm not, like, I, I you know, I, I wholeheartedly believe that there's a lot of people who do, would do a very good job with that $15,000 and do, and they provide more for the family. And, but there's the opposite and is the people who may not have healed from residential school or the history and the trauma who are still suffering with addictions and, and, and mental health issues and concurrent disorders and um, who may not make the right decisions with, with those funds. Right. And so for us on our end, like we see the investment into culture and the services and the programs into infrastructure, such a, you see the outcomes more, right. You can really tangibly see the difference it makes in people's lives. And when you do a, a large distribution, you don't see that same, you may see a new vehicle, you may see a new, you know, something, but you don't see the tangible um, return, right? Your return on that investment isn't the same as if you did it in the form of program services and, and infrastructure. Um, but I get it. I get it. Like it's, it's such a tough one for those smaller communities because we know, you know, the reality is there's so many families that struggle and, and you know that $15,000 probably did help a lot. But I also see where, and you go back to that, that discussion of unity where, you know, I'd be happy to open up our, our policy, our procedure, our laws, our, our finances and show other communities, this is what we do and we can help you, yeah. you know, just give us the opportunity. And if we're unified more, I really believe you can do that work. And that's something we've offered even at the Chilquaya tribe. I think we have a really good governance system set up. We have a good model to how we operate as a tribe, but we respect the autonomy of each community. But we work together on these bigger issues. And I we would and I put this out before, I'll put it out again, is that we would love to offer that to other tribal communities or just communities is, you know, how can we help you get there? You know, we have an economic development board of directors. We've said it at our board of directors that we would happily have our board of directors go into other communities and help them set up economic development opportunities and invest in long-term sustainable revenue streams for their membership. We'd love to use that. And, and help our other communities get there. It's just difficult. And I get it for the smaller communities because sometimes it's tough to think that 
I mean, we're all based on elections too, yeah. right? It's the reality. And if you're have an election for a distribution and um, and the members say, yes, we want a distribution from it, then if you don't do it, chances are you're not getting elected in next time, right? So it's really a tough, it's a tough balance to, to make. And, you know, I think there's a lot of tough decisions that, that you have to make as leadership. And we went through the same thing. We did, we, we did that lease with the two other communities and we brought in a substantial amount of revenue from it, but we made our expectations very clear from the beginning is that we were going to use that money to invest back into our membership. And part of that money went to build in a longhouse. That was one of our promises was that if this lease is approved, we'll build you a longhouse. And we did, you know, and we invested it back into other programs and services. And we invested a good chunk of that money into a land, land purchase reserve fund as well. So we did what we promised, but we didn't promise a distribution, yeah. you know, and that's the, the difference that I think we took from it was that, you know, we, we created a plan, but the plan was for the community as a whole and how to really, you know, use, utilize those funds to, to benefit all of our community and without a distribution. I think we did, cause it was, it was, a, was it after COVID or something too? I think we did a small distribution from that, like 500 bucks from that, but not nothing too, too substantial. Right. And I, if I recall correctly, it was right before Christmas, it was a tough year. And so we decided let's add an extra $500 onto our members distribution just to show that, Hey, we're, we're here, we're here to help and we're here to support you. And, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that we promised to the membership either. Yeah. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think about this issue a lot because, um, and I'm interested to get your thoughts on this for a community like yours that was, even when you were growing up is mm -hmm. in more of the heart of the community. Yeah. And I think that that just places you and your community in a different footing yeah. than communities out in the middle of nowhere, because the ability to consider going to a dentist, going to a counselor, yeah. connecting with a lawyer, visiting a small business, understanding the value of entrepreneurship, all of that comes from being in that community mm -hmm. and seeing that in the day-to-day -day. and I really I think a lot about my community because I think about how hard it would be to go to UFB if you're living all the way out on low heat highway yeah. and having to drive 45 minutes out every day for school that's going to be discouraging um, gas is expensive insurance buying a car exactly like all these things yeah and then thinking about that lack of access to resources mental health mm -hmm. resources being able to connect with a lawyer and just feel that connection when all your access is to your own community and you don't have lawyers, accountants, yep. business owners, judges, um, like all these different variety of people, your knowledge base isn't as strong when it comes to return on investment. Mm -hmm. And so one of my hopes is to deliver financial literacy to indigenous communities because uh, particularly rural, because I feel like that that is a conversation that may get may occur but isn't done with the passion or the understanding of seven generations or yep. all of these key tools that help people think and understand why that's so important yeah. and so one of my other goals is to do a and it'll be coming up is a how to start a business mini series because again i think that that knowledge reaches shiacton squiala totally. all these communities right there because they see their small business owners and they see people working in their community who've started businesses and are involved but when you're out in a rural community you don't have that same access you don't have those same peers who if you say i have this brilliant idea to start like a bannock business or i have this idea to start like a canoe business like you can have this idea and then nobody understands what that potential yeah. is how valuable that would be what the cost would be how to get started how to incorporate who to call regarding accounting like yeah. all of those people it's that would be too intimidating so i just imagine this person being like i have this brilliant idea and telling them all their friends and their 
friends being like, hi, you're crazy. Like, what are you thinking? Good luck. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that, yeah. that discouragement causes even worse circumstances for them to consider economic development. 100%. And I think it's, it's definitely a gap. You know, even, I'll, even for us as Chiat, and that's an area that we probably fall short on is supporting our membership if they, if they really do have those, you know, entrepreneurial needs. And I think that'd be a fantastic uh, mini series to do. And I'd be interested to even, offline chat with you a bit more but like in incorporating that into some of the chamber work i do yeah. as well because we're trying to do more of those those mini series and stuff and around education and stuff so and especially business right so uh yeah i think that'd be a fantastic uh series if you did do it we'll i'll definitely we'll, we'll be in discussions after as well awesome. um but i do see that as you you mentioned like you know that that idea of thinking that seven generations ahead and i think that's such a big role that i've seen now as well especially over the last couple of years is Financial independence today looks a lot different than financial independence in 50, 75 years or 100 years, right? So what am I doing today to enable the leaders of Chiacton or whatever it might, Chiquayac, whatever it might look like in 50, 75 years to set them up in a place where they can still do the progress that I'm trying to do, right? And so what comes with that is, you know, having financial literacy and knowing the reality of budgeting and, and really the reality of operations budgets, capital budgets and and ongoing inflation and all and all that that plays into all this that, you know, my budget today for this year for Chiacton is going to look very different in five years. Even if we don't produce more programs and services, the cost, you know, our employees costs go up, the benefits go up, everything with, with that all the budgets go up. So you got to really think in the next 50 to 100 years, what is that going to look like for Chiacton? And what am I doing today to set us up for that? And I think that's something we've we've done well at now these last couple of years is really creating some sustainable investments that I know we're leaving for 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 a while that I know is going to set up our, our membership for the next, ideally, 100 years. And that's the idea that I think a lot of communities get bogged down in this. We've got revenue. Now, how do we give it back to our membership right away when, okay, we've got revenue, but how do we set up our community to be successful down the road when the reality on the reserve systems is that we don't have the luxury that a lot of municipalities do with the expansive land base. We're restricted to what we have for land base. So what are we doing today with the resources to help benefit our members, like I said, in 50 or 100 years? Because our resources are going to run out on Chiacton. It's a reality. I know that. So what are we doing with those resources to plan? Because when they run out, we better have some sustainable revenue and ongoing revenue, which we do through taxation and, and, and other avenues. But what are we doing with those revenues to make sure that we're not wasting them? Not wa- like wasting is the wrong term probably, but not using them in a not, a not very responsible way, right? So I think that's a huge discussion that I think would benefit so many communities in uh, not only BC, but across this country, right? And uh, yeah, it's so important. Like I said, I'm so lucky to have um, somebody like our director of finance, Lori Fallis, who's been working for First Nations for most of her life. And she understands the the needs, but also the future needs. So I've learned a lot from her as well. And, um, you know, we've I couldn't be more proud of what we've been doing these last couple of years to to set us up set us up for those next those seven generations. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I just think about I took a taxation course, and one of the things I learned was, and I, you may know this, that um, when a government like Trudeau has printed so much money as he has, it causes 
hyperinflation. Yeah. And I think about how that is directly going to impact people on fixed incomes. Yeah. Who are on fixed incomes? My indigenous community, other indigenous communities. And our elders. So many of our elders. Exactly. Yeah. And the fact that we don't connect to the two and say, this person is going to cause our community to be in worse financial system, financial circumstances, and to be able to argue that it just, it frustrates me because I know that what's going on is going to have a detriment to my community, to the members. It hasn't happened yet. We just saw it went up to 3.7%, but I think it's going to continue. And I think that that's going, the people who are going to pay the worst price are the people that we're saying need the biggest leg up. And the fact that they're getting put in an even worse circumstance and can't advocate for themselves frustrates me I think the most because they like if I went and asked the average indigenous person living on reserve what do you think of inflation and how is that going to affect like they're not they're not focused on that and that's okay nobody can focus on all different topics but that our indigenous organizations aren't arguing with the government you need to stop printing money yeah. because that is going to cause harm to people on fixed incomes that I haven't heard that argument leveled to Trudeau or any government mm-hmm. is very frustrating to me because I know that in 10 years they're likely going to be paying the consequence. Yeah. And guess when, what are we doing today to make sure that we're supporting our members for that? Right. So that's, that's a, you know, definitely a, a topic that it, it does worry me as well. Right. It worries. I know we have, you know, some members that it require a little more support than others. And we know that. We know that. And we, we do our best to prepare for that and make sure that we're setting ourselves up, but also setting our members up to succeed in that way as well. But it's difficult, you know, and some challenges and some of these situations you can't predict. And you have to be able to be there and, and react in a good way that, um, and it goes back to this empathetic, you know, being an empathetic leader and, and not being so um, prescriptive in, in my like in that Western kind of view of, well, if you don't meet this ticky box, you're not going to get any funds from Chiacton. Yeah. You know, I just, that's not the way that I, I like to operate. And I see it as, as being more human about that and being able, but planning for it. Right. You have to plan for it. That's yeah. awesome. Are you going to be running again? Oh yeah. I'll, yeah. You know, <laughs> I, yeah, I'll do, I'll be doing this for, I don't know. I'm going to keep running. We'll see where my life takes me. I have all the intentions to run again next for next term. And, um, what is that next term? When, in when? two and a half years. Okay. So 2024. And is it four years? Yeah, four-year terms. My first term was three years. Uh, then we, we, our community has been trying to change our election code for, oh, 15 years or so. So when I got in, that was one of the, the big things that was on our to-do list was, okay, let's try to get this election code passed. So I think I was the third or fourth attempt at it. And we managed to get it passed, which changed our uh, terms to four-year term. So now I'm on four-year term. So definitely, you know, definitely going to keep going and, and we'll see where... At the end of the day, I, I have this, like, it may sound stupid or may, like, it, people probably laugh at me and I've said it before and I would love to mentor somebody one day to just take over my role and have a... That doesn't sound stupid at uh, all. And, and have really a, a smooth transition yeah. and not have... If, and yeah, we have to have an election. That's part of it. But I would love to have an election one day where, you know, we can, I can mentor somebody who wants to take over this role and, and I could you know, exit, exit gracefully and have someone enter gracefully as well and be prepared. Because that was one of the biggest things that I struggled with when I got into the role is I didn't know what the heck I was supposed to do, where I was supposed to be, you know, what my role is. And I'd spent six months figuring that out when I think you could do a lot of work leading up to that and having somebody stepping in and being able to pick the ball up and run with it without having to spend that six months to a year learning, you know, and, and understanding what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to be? What does this role entail? 
So I would love to be able to, you know, one day if somebody, you know, came to me and said, Hey, Derek, I want to run for chief next term. Okay. Let's work at that. You know, let's figure that out. I'll figure out something else to do if that's what the community wants, you know, and if that's really what the community wants, then let's do that. Let's, let's get you prepared for this job. And, um, I think it'd just be fantastic. I would love to see it happen. Yeah. And I'd love to see in other communities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that young leaders like yourself, like David Jimmy, set such a strong example on how to proceed because, and I'd like you to touch on what that partnership was like when you were taking on the role. What what was your relationship with David Jimmy at the time? Was that yeah. your first time meeting him? Were you guys friends for a long time prior? No, we've known, like I've known Dave. Like we've, you know, I've seen him around before being in this role and um, everybody knows of Dave, David Jimmy, right? So, uh, but when I got in the role, he was, you know, we clicked right away and somebody that, you know, I can say he's, he's a really good friend of mine, a really good colleague and a mentor, like really he's a mentor of mine as well. And a role model for me, um, he's been a resource for me that I, I just can't say enough of, especially early on, early on, I had no idea what I was getting into, where I should be. He was a guy that I talked to right away, Dave, like, what are these meetings I should be at? You know, I have no idea what my calendar should look like. So he helped me connect with the people who, you know, send out the meeting invites for these bigger political meetings, connect me with the right resources and help me understand a bit of my role. So, um, yeah, I think Dave's been just an amazing friend and colleague and mentor for me. And even, you know, we check in, we text regularly, we talk regularly. We, you know, he's somebody we're at meetings a lot together. Um, but he's somebody who just brings this, um, to me, I, uh, he just brings this different level of thought to me and, and, and he questions the way he questions things sometimes in a really healthy way. And, you know, I've learned a lot about that from him about, um, sometimes I talk too much and I know that, right. And sometimes it's just taking a moment to, to listen and to take it all in and process before you respond is something that I think Dave's really really good at and um and being able to think uh strategically in different scenarios and bigger picture sometimes is something that i've really been able to learn from from dave and i really um his mentorship is someone something that i really can't uh put even a word to i think it's just been um really grateful to have someone like dave uh be a part of my growing as a chief and growing as a person yeah, yeah. That is really great to hear yeah. because I think that that is to what you're saying of wanting to have be able yeah. to mentor somebody else, that that's kind of the role he played for you. Yeah. Um, do you think that the four-year term works? Do you think that it forces you to be, like the, yeah. arg- the argument in like um, the US and in Canada is that it forces, this four-year cycle forces our leaders to think short-term. We have short-term election cycles, yeah. therefore they think short-term. But I think that local politics kind yeah. of puts a contrast to that. I don't think that um, you necessarily have to think short term, or maybe I'm wrong. Do, does that? No, matter? I think you're right. Like, and, and it's tough. Like that first three year term was, I mean, you you feel like you have to hit the hit the ground running, like in trying to do uh, as much as you possibly can in three years. And I can't imagine the bands who still function on a two year term, you know, and having to think, you know, what <laughs> in two years? What am I going to do in two years to get reelected again? Right? You you start doing initiatives, and then before you know it, you're running for chief again or council. But in a four-year term, yeah, it gives you a bit more time to think. Um, it definitely think short term or whatever. But I, I, I don't really like to think that way. I, I, for me, even at the last election, it didn't stop me from from continuing on with my job. I didn't stop doing the things I I had to do because an election was up and I had to campaign. No, I just kept keep on keeping on and thinking long term and. And I really do love thinking long-term. I have so many long-term goals for Jack and that I think so, so big sometimes that I have to reel myself into, okay, 
you think big, where do you start though? Right. And so I always think long-term I, I, and I have a hard time narrowing it down to short-term to say, where do I start? And that's why I use the, the resources around me to help me with that, that thought process. Cause I, I constantly think what's the next big thing. What's the next big thing to change Chiat and, and change our memberships lives. And how can I play a part in that? So I don't know. I, I, I think the opposite. I always think, you know, what's these big things that I think we need to invest in and how do we get there? Yeah. What, can you tell us yeah, about totally. some, of, some of these housing, big ideas? Housing strategies. We're starting, we, you know, we partner with BC Housing and ISK on a uh, 23 unit row home housing development. It should be done by next May. Uh, managing expectations next summer, some point. <laughs> uh, but then the next goal is to, you know, that next housing strategy is, is to be able to provide um, serviced lots for our members who can afford to build on and come back home. So we provide an avenue for them to come back home. We've heard it from so many of our members that they want to live on Chiatin, but there's so little land left for our members to build homes on um, that we need to do as, as, as Chiatin Council uh, do do a better job of finding land for our members to and service that land for our members to build homes. We're trying to meet the needs of affordable homes right now for our members who are on those fixed incomes and low incomes to to access quality home housing for the long term future at a very affordable rate. And we're going to do that. The next step is what about our members who want to come home and can afford to build a home? So that's the next big thing that I'm working on with that strategy. The other aspect, which I'm very passionate about is social and health and well-being. And, you know, the eventual goal is to draw down more and more services from Stalo Nation and Stalo Health. And even maybe through the First Nations Health Authorities, draw down more of these services. But where do we start? So where I'm starting is doing an assessment and working with people like Sue Griffin from Stalo Health um, around understanding the gaps in Stalo Health services who are directly funded from First Nations Health Authority. So in understanding what are the gaps that Stolo Health is struggling to fill and how can we as a progressive community use our, our revenues to fill those gaps. So one of the gaps we see right now is that obviously was the waitlist and counseling. So we address that, we created our own counseling program. The next one we're doing is we're hiring more of a care aid hands-on health worker to be in the homes to help supplement the services that Stalo Health and Fraser Health are trying to provide to so many of our elders and vulnerable people. So we have somebody who's more boots on the ground in there advocating for better services through Stalo Health or FNHA or Fraser Health, but also working directly with me. Right now, I've been doing that for the last couple of years and it's tough. Like it's, and I, I can't spend the amount of time that I want to on that. If I could do that for a full-time job, I would love it. I would love to be working with our members, but the reality is I can't. I can't be in there every day. So now we're hiring somebody to fill that gap. When I've been doing that for the last four and a half years. Um, so that's our first kind of step. With the, we know transportation is an issue, so we're gonna eventually with that, this new worker's gonna understand our transportation needs more. And likely we're gonna hire somebody to be a full-time driver for our members and our elders. And um, But with the eventual goal, of my big long-term vision goal is building a health center, you know, a bigger health center where we can have, you know, prevention health workers in there. And I come from very much a preventative lens rather than a reactionary lens where right now we have Yothmi social workers who are prevention social workers sitting out of one of our offices, not apprehensive apprehension social workers. They're there to prevent. I'm proud to say we have no kids in care from Chiatin, none. And, you know, that's something that I was so proud to see. And so long-term, big vision, big housing strategy, new health facility, that's probably 20 years away. Like really, 20 years away for us to build a facility big enough to bring in all these health services 
And I would love to provide health services to surrounding communities who don't have the, the capacity to do it. You know, like Sawali, Yekakwea, Skokale. If we're able to be that conduit for them, great. Let's do it. Skokale yeah. has... Our yeah, their new SAE building. Yeah. Can you tell us about that or what you know about it? Yeah, that? so what I know about it is like basically a joint administrative building uh, slash kind of health building for uh, the community there. Uh, I don't think like, it's not big enough to to be a solely a health health building because they're bringing in all their main administrative functions for the three communities. Right. It's going to be a, a beautiful building. I'm really excited for them to see that because they've needed that for so long too. And, uh, but really it's just bringing them together and it really shows how three communities can come together. Three smaller communities can come together and achieve something for the benefit of all of their communities. And um, I couldn't be more happy for them. I think it's a fantastic thing that, um, that they've taken on. They've secured some funding through the federal government for that as well. And, um, and good for them. I just, I'm excited for them. Um, I think what they're going to realize when they move in there is that, uh, you know, with their growth as their communities is they're going to run out of space quickly as, as well again. And we did the same thing when we built our facilities. It was like, oh crap, we're out of space already. So, um, and I, I, it's a good thing though. It's a good thing that they're growing and, and being able to provide better services and programs to their membership. So which, I'm excited for them. Which are the three communities? Skalkale, Achalitz, and Yakakuyas. Oh, okay. So Achalitz and Yakakuyas are very small, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I think Yakakuyas has, I don't know, 60 to 70 members, and Achalitz is similar, maybe a few less. So the reality is with small communities is, you know, they're going to struggle to to be able to, to build that infrastructure. So it's really cool to see the three of them come together and do that. Absolutely. And I think that that is, these conversations I really enjoy because these are the communities that never get any spotlight yeah. ever. And we were just near Achalitz First Nation, uh, some of their housing, yeah. um, just down, I think it's still, it's Yale Road. It's in yeah, the industrial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. it's just, I took Rebecca there and I was just like, did you know this is like a First Nation community? And she was like, I had no idea. And it's like, most people probably yeah. don't. And it's it's that reconnection. And I think that that's where I like to see the um, land acknowledgements go. It's less about like, we're on this territory i really like just connecting people and getting that like oh just so you know when you go to the save on foods near promontory you're actually on shiacton first yeah. nation when you're at walmart you're yeah. at squayala first Nation. Like, yeah. connecting that because then that's like when you go to rosedale or greendale or it gives you that more like what community am yeah. i in not in and chilliwack you're on shiacton exactly yeah. and i see people using like well we're in the stolo territory and it's like that that's not that's again that's that lip service to me yeah. because i want that education piece and i think that being able to break things down for people and show them this is just like rosedale this is just like greendale this yep. is just like Ryder lake or whatever community it's it's like that mm -hmm. and it deserves the same respect that you give totally. those communities yeah and we have municipal status like chiac and we are considered a municipality so it, it's interesting because yes we were designated as a municipality but so many different policies in, in both the provincial and federal legislation and acts still discriminate First Nations is not having the same status as a municipality does. So a good example of that is we're going after, uh, I always like to push the boundaries of jurisdictions of, you know, we have the right as any other municipality does. And one of those jurisdictions is around BC Hydro and Hydro or just services in general. And we're trying to take over BC Hydro services for on Chiacton to generate some more revenue, ongoing own source revenue. But in the BC Utilities Act, it specifies that First Nations do not are not exempt the same way municipalities are, which enables municipalities to then buy and take over hydro services at a bulk rate to sell to their end users to generate revenue. In the Act, it specifies we're not allowed to. So I'm working on getting an exemption through that Act 
to set a precedence for other communities who want to take on those services and have the capacity to to do so to generate revenue. So I'm always like this this balance of yes, we we are a like you said we are Chiacton. You're on Chiacton. You're not on Chilliwack. You're on Chiacton, and we want to assert those levels of jurisdiction um, the same way any municipality has the entitlement to. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Can you tell us what your relationship is with the city of Chilliwack? Because oh, I think fantastic. That, I think yeah. that that's an area where people don't ever hear the two kind oh, of communicate. I'm a big believer that we need to work together. We do. We work very well together. Ken Popoff, the mayor, him and I, we text, we call, we, we golf together sometimes. Like We have a very good relationship. Um, and that goes back to, I've known Ken since I was a child. So that goes back to, to well before he was even a mayor and I, well before I was a chief. Um, but even with their staff, that same level of respect, you know, us as a growing community on chat and we have areas in our land code and our zonings that zoning laws and policies that we're, we question sometimes, is, is this the same that the city would do? So we pick up the phone, phone Glenn White or other people at carriage effort at the city and say, Hey, what would you do? And they provide us feedback and advice back on how to, how to, mitigate those factors in a development proposal or whatever it might be. And, and so we have a fantastic working relationship. We work on servicing, we work, we submit joint applications for sidewalks. And I sit on various committees with the city of Chilliwack, you know, one being the diversity acceptance and inclusion committee. And uh, the other one, I sent another task force for the mayor's mayor's task force as well. So um, yeah, the inclusion that I felt from, you know, specifically Ken and his, his council, and now his staff, I just feel like um, we're in a good spot with them. And I, I can't say enough about how important those relationships are. I'm a big believer in building relationships in order to move forward because reality is we live in Chilliwack, but Chiacton together. We all live here together. So yeah. how do we make this a, a safer, a better community for all of us to live in and thrive in together? Yeah. Is that is that ever tough to manage the jurisdictions and where those boundaries are, or is it simple? Like I see all these developments coming yeah. about, new roads, um, updated lights. How does that all come together? Yeah, so like we we know developments are coming, and we kind of had a feeling that our members were starting to capitalize on some other land, which they have the right to do so, right? Like they, you know, they have the right to land valuations all over the province in the Fraser Valley went up substantially same same thing happened on chiac and so our members capitalize on those on those valuations and good for them but what we did we you know we gave the city the heads up like this is coming guys what are you doing to to work with us to prepare that and that's why you saw the widening of promontory road you know why we're working together on producing sidewalks down chilliwack river road to increase safety because it's not just chiac and members living on chiac it's city again a lot of our taxation revenue goes back to the city so they're dependent on Chiac. You know, we, we give back in the excess of three, $4 million a year in taxation back to the city. Wow. So the reality is, is they get revenues from Chiac that they wouldn't get unless we were progressing as well. Yeah. So um, they need to work with us and they do. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's really good to see with the development. We work together with developers to understand, you know, road systems, roadways, what makes sense for not only for Chiacton, but what makes sense for the city of Chilliwack and how we can improve safety and infrastructure for uh, all the residents of Chilliwack and Chiacton. Wow, that is awesome. Yeah. And now let's get into Chilliwack Chamber of Commerce. Yeah. Tell us about how that all came about. Oh, yeah, I got uh, Dave, Dave sewered me into that one. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Dave, Dave was stepping down and from the Chamber of Commerce. And uh, before he was stepping down, he wanted to, he talked to me and said, would I be willing to step into 
that role. And I said, yeah, you know, sure. Like I'd, you know, be happy to take on that, that role on behalf of um, First Nations and Chilliwack. So it's been a, it's been fantastic. You know, Leanna Kemp there, the executive director and the whole board, um, really awesome to see this business community um, work together in a very inclusive way. Uh, and some of the work we do now is with all the residential school stuff coming up is we're focusing on this um, this idea of one of the paths to reconciliation is education. So that's where I mentioned some of the education initiatives that we're wanting to do, create a bit more of a calendar around um, to educate the business community on the histories of, of First Nations and the impacts of residential school and, and the impacts on the business community that, you know, Indigenous entrepreneurs struggle, like you said, and how do we support those Indigenous entrepreneurs as well? So that's one of the pieces we're also focusing on this workforce issue as well to to try to bring together better supports for our youth to to enter the workforce whether it be post-secondary education or whether it be trades or something that we can also have an inclusive kind of approach to that to include the indigenous community so um we have a partnership with the Stolen business association and um so yeah i think it's you know the work we do at the chamber is is good work it's fulfilling as well like you mentioned before it's fulfilling it's it has fun moments where we have pre-covid we do connections where we'd all get together as a business community and and then there's also the galas that go on and and really the uh at the galas they're trying to incorporate more of the traditional welcomes the traditional we had gwen and and ayaya uh she goes she goes by her traditional name ayaya now but Teresa uh walkus she would come they'd come and do a you know some traditional dance and drumming and, and to, to welcome the the gala and welcome the people to the gala that didn't happen before right so those little things those little gestures they go a long way to recognize the territory in which we we all work and play on so it's it's yeah that's good work. Yeah. That's awesome. How what is it like to kind of watch the business uh in Chilliwack develop and grow and what have you seen from being involved in that? Yeah, it's interesting. Like it's 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 cool to see the growth and and to see where we are as a as a city but also like we do uh tours uh, as a chamber board where we go around to anywhere from small to large business like industrial or whatever and we do a check-in like you know how is business especially with covid what are your challenges where can we help. And it was cool for me because I got to do uh, check in on a lot of the Chiatin businesses that are on Chiatin. So got to do a pulse check and and see where they're at and and being able to be hey I'm Chief Chief Derek Hepp, but also Chamber Board of Director just here to see how how's it going from both ends from my Chamber lens, but also my role as Chief is you know how is our shopping center doing? How successful are our business businesses doing on Chiatin? And uh, so I find that really you know. Uh, a really cool experience and something that I really truly enjoy doing. Yeah. yeah. Would you ever consider starting a business? Because it seems like you have a very entrepreneurial mindset and yeah. your willingness to dive into things. You know, uh, at first, again, I think you know, like my my when I was younger, I had this goal of starting you know uh, youth homes, and that was one of my my goals that I wrote a, a lot about in in scholarship essays and stuff like that, and um, uh, youth homes for youth who are you know struggling, right, and struggling. Uh, to fit in like foster systems aren't, aren't a very good place for a lot of youth. So that was my, my original goal, but I don't, now I don't think so. I don't think I would, I would start a business, maybe a consultant business down the road, maybe, but, uh, I don't know. I, I just don't, uh, I think my goals have definitely shifted a bit in life. And, um, I think that's just a natural evolution of as us as humans, we, we grow and evolve into, and find different priorities and, and I think 
at this point in life? Probably not. Is yeah. it because it's you're you're able to see a bigger picture now and be able to support those kind of ideas in a yeah. different way? I think so. I think that's exactly it. Is that I see my role now more in a, uh, you know, I, I I use my BSW so much in such a different role now, um, in a higher level role where I can ha- create systemic change where I see that the systemic change can impact so many more lives than if I were to to do something. And this takes nothing away from the people that, that are taking on those very important tasks of starting businesses, whether it's in you know, entrepreneurial or whether it's in, you know, social businesses like youth homes and stuff like that. I think the people who do that, you know, are doing fantastic jobs and, and good for them. But I think I can really be a part of some larger scale change, which I would love to to play my part in that. And I think that's, that's where I belong is, is really in this larger systemic change that I really have a passion for being a part of. When did yeah. that come about? When did that change come mm-hmm. when you started to kind of see like, wow, I can really, like, was that when you were considering running for chief or when was that like within the role? After, where- yeah, after I became chief, that's where I really saw that, you know, I, I do have a part to play here and I can play a bigger part than I ever thought, yeah. than I really ever thought. Um, and I think it was probably six months into my term where I really took a step back and thought, um, where do I want to, like, after I really understood the functions of CHIAC and understood the functions of my political role as well, I took a step back and thought, where do I need to be, you know, and, and where do I need to be to make the biggest impact and, and really, um, use my skills and values and tools to the best of my ability. And I don't attend all the big political functions, the big, you know, national, provincial, um, government organizations. I go to some, but I usually catch up through emails or through, um, getting the resolutions emailed out or whatever it might be. And I, I don't go to a lot of the political big ones because I see my time and my assets better spent in, in other areas. And that's taking nothing away from the people who, who are at the political tables because we need those political leaders to be there and making those changes. But I, I see my skill set and my time better spent in, a, in, in these bigger you know, health tables, social tables, working in a community level, not just for Chiac and like through the CYHC, working at the chamber, working on the city's um, uh, task forces, working at the First Nations Finance Authority. You know, I see my time spent there uh, being more effective. And and that's just me. You know, that's who my, that's my skill set. That's who I am. Um, but I think I really figured that out after about six months in my term. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's so valuable because that's really what I'm trying to convey in the podcast is that you can make real change right here, right in your community. You don't have to look anywhere other than your own community to start to be able to make that real impact. And that's probably where you should start if you're going to do anything because focusing on the world or that's a too big of a piece and some people choose to go that route. But I think that the value, you start there and then that influence will carry. And I think that the legacy you're going to leave in this role is one of like helping your community. And then that can grow and continue to build and expand across the Fraser Valley and beyond. And I think that that's so valuable for people to consider because I think too often we think so small of ourselves. We look at ourselves as like, I can do this teeny tiny little thing and contribute very little. And I know a lot of people who don't even think they contribute anything. They go to their work, they leave, they go home, and they don't realize that each customer you interact with, each person you talk to, you can make that person's day better, 
or worse, totally. depending on how you approach them and depending on the mindset you're bringing. And if you don't treat yourself well, if you don't get a good night's sleep, if you don't um, make sure you have the food you need, yeah. if you do, if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. How do you manage all of this stuff? How do you <laughs> make sure that you're present at the table? Because I liked what you started with at the beginning of our, our discussion is that it's very hard to switch your mindset mm -hmm. when you're going from a meeting perhaps about social work and about community yep. to business and finance and yeah. switching that from Zoom call to Zoom call and making sure that you're present and you've well rested. How do you approach all of that? Yeah, I think, you know, rest is key too, like absolutely. Um, and being able to shut off at night and, uh, you know, even last night, like I knew I have a busy day today and I knew starting with this and then my afternoon's busy. Then I have, I have to go to a longhouse meeting at night as well. So I knew I had to get a good sleep, right? So that's where it starts is like, I got to get to bed at a decent time. Can't get caught up watching TV or whatever too. And, uh, but then start the day well, right? I, you know, I, for me, one of my biggest challenges from being a younger, uh, being a teenager up into my adulthood, I struggled with mental health. I really did. I struggled with depression. I struggled with, um, and not probably a lot of people know that, but I, I, especially in high school, I bet you people in high school had no idea that I struggled with depression at the level that I did. I really, uh, I was very depressed. I was heavily medicated for a lot of, um, my late teenage years. And, um, I bet you people that I went to school with had no idea. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because yeah. I think that that's, I have quite a few listeners who have said they're struggling with that. And mm -hmm. so I think someone like yourself who on paper is so incredibly accomplished yeah. being able to share that. Yeah, no, and I, like, and I, I, I'm happy. I'm in a good spot. I'm very happy with where I'm at today. But yeah, I have weeks, I have months, I have days that are, are difficult and I still, but I know me, like I, I did several years of counseling to, to work through some of the triggers in my life and some of the emotions and feelings that led me to, to, uh, to, to suffer from depression as well. And, uh, and, but it was a journey. Like it absolutely was a journey. I had a fantastic support network growing up, like really couldn't think my mom, my dad, my friends, my wife now has been through me, through with me on a, many of the darkest days of my life, probably when in my teenage years, late teenage years and some moments where, yeah, like suicidal ideation and, and stuff like that, that was, that I struggled with. And, um, you know, now I can comfortably talk about it because I'm, I'm confident with who I am and where I'm at. And, and I'm confident enough to say that, yeah, like I still struggle. Like there is days like post COVID when, or when COVID hit and my soccer started, my, my exercise that I so heavily depend on. Cause I know for me, I need to exercise to maintain my mental health. Um, soccer is a big part, has always played a huge part in my life, even just running and, and being active. Now I picked up mountain biking when COVID hit because soccer stopped. So I had to figure out, and I had, and my wife knows, like I had a month there. I know I wasn't yeah, functioning at a level that I, I normally am at. I wasn't that same, you know, happy, you know, very um, positive outlook on life. Albeit you, you get through the workday, you do your best to, to, you know, be the best person you can at work, but then you come home and that's where, you know, you're real, you kind of let loose. You're like, oh, that was tough. Like, that was a tough day. But, you know, I thought, I had a ref reflected back on myself after that again. And I thought, what am I doing that I'm, that I'm not, that it, maybe what am I not doing right now? And one of those things was the exercise piece. But then the other aspect was I stopped taking my vitamin D to me, which was such a simple thing for me to, to, to help increase the, that, there's levels of serotonin and that, so that for me is, okay, get back to that simple things, vitamin D exercise and, and really just doing the basics for me and was to, to get back to that. And, 
yeah, I had a bad month, but after that, I, I feel like I'm in a really good spot again. And I, and I have bad days still, but I think so does everybody. And I think there's so much stigma around mental health and, um, and depression and that I, you know, I just try to do my best to talk about it and say that, you know, the, I was, I was an athlete in school. I had good grades. I had great friends and I still suffered from severe depression in high school. And even my twin, um, you know, me and my twin have such a fantastic, cool relationship that if you know us, you know, we're like so weirdly close and, um, identical twins, especially me and him are just, uh, you know, we've, we've always been so close. We never really felt what it's been like to be alone, right? Like that's just the reality of being an identical twin. But I remember him looking at me one day, um, and saying like, Derek, I don't know what's wrong with you because we have the same life. We have the same friends. We both are, you know, we play high level soccer. We, we have a great life and we do well in school. Why do you feel that way? And I don't. And, you know, even somebody, my identical twin, not being able to understand that. And he like, why should he understand? But he was there for me and he was empathetic. He was a support network for me. I had some fantastic friends who I can't thank enough for, um, for being in high school and being, you know, let's call it the jocks of high school. Um, some of my best friends were really um, there for me in, in a way that, you know, you just wouldn't expect. And my wife, even today, like she's, like I said, she's been with me through so many things that um, she's been such a rock for me. Um, she brings this balance to my life. My, my wife is so... Uh, positive and so everything works out for Shayna. like this is the, just the, the thing for for my everything works out for Shayna, and she brings this balance to life for me where you know like you said my, my days are so hectic i'm you know in in one meeting to the next to the next having to shift where i can come home and she just has this aura aura about her that's just so positive and uplifting and and it can just ground me again and that's you know having those people around you i think has really helped me um you know face that challenge head on and uh and really come out of it a better person. You know, it's been, like I said, it's been five, six years in counseling off and on. Yeah. I went back even before I, um, when I maybe went from when I was six to 15, 16, on and off counseling until I was 20-ish, 21 maybe. And then uh, before I went away after university for a long-term practicum, I, I, um, I went back, check in for a couple of sessions, make sure I was okay. You know, make sure I was okay to travel on my own for seven months and yeah. and had a good mental health space to where i was at so travel yeah. uh when it was australia you... i went to australia for seven well six months in australia and like six weeks in thailand and what was that like that was that was awesome i did my last practicum in australia actually uh for my bsw i was one of the only the only student in my cohort to go to an international um co uh, international practicum so that was that was fantastic that was the first time in my life that I really did something by myself without my twin or whatever, right? And so it was really cool to be, to do that and grow into a person, grow into who I am today and be really, I think I, I gained so many, so much insight to who I am and, and my values. And, and uh, yeah, I, it was a fantastic experience. What did you learn from that experience? Oh, I just, you know, I, I was able to learn to be, um, to be, you know, happy by myself. You know, I think you have to be happy by yourself in order to be happy with somebody else as well, right? And, for me personally, I think I took so much from that process personally, but then also I learned a lot about the indigenous culture, indigenous worldview outside of our stall or, or context here. So what yeah. was that? What did you, what was the contrast? Um, I, I, you know, I learned very similar, their, their culture, their beliefs, their, their lifestyles are very similar to what we practice here. But I also learned that 
Australia, in my opinion, is is so far behind us in the way they they view indigenous rights and indigenous uh, governance systems. Where I worked for uh, an Aboriginal child protection agency there, but the government has only allowed them to practice C4 delegation, which means they can only get involved after a child is re- re- removed. They can't get involved prior to. That's up to the mainstream child protection agency to do the assessments and apprehension of children, which is so sad to see. To me, it was so sad to see these passionate people who really want to make a difference in these indigenous families, but they're constrained by policy and law that only allows them to to be there for the families after the child's apprehended. So for me, it was eye-opening. It was sad. It was... Um, but I learned a lot about the, the the good work that so many organizations across this world are doing. Yeah. And that was six months. Yeah, I did my practicum. I did a condensed practicum in about two and a half months. Yeah. And then I traveled around Australia after that for a couple of months. And then I finished off in Thailand where my brother, my twin met me. And uh, another friend of ours met me in Thailand for... Uh, they joined me for three and a half weeks and I stayed an extra couple of weeks by myself. So it was... Wow. Yeah. And how old were you at the time? I was 24. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I think I... I had my 25th birthday over there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us about the journey with your wife and yeah. when you two met and what that, how that led through when you traveled? Yeah. And how that so we, uh, we met in middle school actually. Um, and we've been, you know, friends ever since. And then we started dating in high school. So I go way back with her family. Like her grandpa's like my grandpa, like I've grew up at her grandparents' house. They, um, they had a pool in the backyard. So we grew up there a lot and, so it was, you know, our, our relationship stems deeper than just, um, you know, our, our, our marriage. We go back way, you know, as, as best friends, really. And so it's really cool to, to be able to live life with her. And the better part of our lives have been spent together. Um, but in her 20s, like, we, we kind of split up for a couple of years. And that was just, you know, where I was at in life as well. And, um, and that's when, 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 I, when we split up. That's where I was finishing up my degree. And that's when I decided to go travel and, mm-hmm. and do. And then when I got back... Uh, shortly after I got back, we got back together again. And that was just, um, yeah, a good opportunity for me to grow and for her to grow. And she traveled a bit as well. And uh, we came back together. And I think, you know, both of us are better for that. Yeah. yeah. And how did that come about? How did you propose? How did that all For happen? traveling, you mean? No, like, oh. no. Like, how did you guys propose to get married? Oh, oh, so we, <laughs> funny story. So we kind of got back. We were talking again. Uh, well, we always talked, but we were actually kind of, hanging out again when I was got back from Australia uh, a couple months after I got back from Australia we were hanging out again and kind of doing it in secret too and just kind of just hanging out and spending time together and then um, I broke my leg and really bad playing soccer and I was supposed to go away on a family vacation two weeks before the vacation I broke my leg really bad and had to have surgery and couldn't travel so at the time she was she stepped in and, and really helped take care of me when my family was gone and it just really sparked us back up again into the way that, uh, you know, we started hanging out more and more together. And and then things just naturally progressed back to, to where we are today. Yeah. And yeah. how did you propose? How did you guys? Oh, how did uh, all of that come so we, uh, I proposed to, well, what, three years ago now or whatever. And um, so, yeah, so it was, her dad lives in Edmonton. Um, so when he came out and I was trying to figure out a way to propose prior to, because he doesn't come out very often. So I wanted to give him the opportunity to celebrate with us as well. So he was out and I had these other plans in place, but then weather messed it up and all this. So I ended up 
you know, one of her favorite things is spending Sundays together, especially during, she's a huge NFL fan, spending Sundays together in bed or on the couch or whatever with, with her dog watching, watching football. So I knew that. So then, uh, in the morning I had mimosas and, and some, some breakfast ready for us. And, uh, before she even woke up, I had everything ready for her and woke her up with a ring in her face and said, you know, will you marry me? Cause her dad was out and I wanted to make sure that he, uh, could experience it with us as well. So yeah, it was kind of a last minute thing. I was like, okay, well, I got to do something. And yeah. I just went with it. And at the end of the day, it was, it didn't really matter how it happened. I think it just was the fact that, you know, we made it kind of official and yeah right that is awesome and i really want to get a little bit more into what you see in her because uh my one of my other concerns is that so many people have this surface level understanding of love of romance of what it means to be in a relationship and the thing that discourages me the most is seeing men put in so much work at the very beginning the first six months they try so hard and then i talk to them seven eight months in and they're like yeah well like she's mine now and that's it's good and I'm good to go. And and yeah. then they like feel betrayed because that six months that was like you're yeah. telling me who you are during that period. Yeah. And for the guys, to me, what I've seen is them be much more like that's that was the best of me and you got it and now I'm done now and now I get to relax and watch TV and chill out. Yeah. And so that always concerns me because it feels like they miss the point of a marriage, of a commitment, and you see the divorce rates are so high. Yeah. And it's because to me, people don't understand that you've tied your life in with somebody and that they are there for you when you're low and you're there for them when they're yeah. low. And when they're on their high, you make it even better. And when you're having a great day, they try and make it yeah. even better. Like that partnership is so beautiful yet for some reason our tv shows our movies they all give us the surface level of understanding what it is so can you share a little bit about your relationship absolutely i mean i think and you you raised really good points like she's been there with me through my lowest of lows right and i've been there with her through some of her lows as well and we've seen each other in, in positions and and times in our lives that probably nobody else has right and so we've built this different level of relationship where she knows me, like she knows who I am. She knows when I'm having those bad days and she asks and says, it's, we make a joke of it. Like, uh, it's not like it makes a huge difference every day, but I know it does. She's like, if I'm having a bad day, did you take your happy pills today? Did you take your vitamin D? Like just yeah. those little things, right? And um, and so for me, I think it's, she, like I said, she brings this balance to, to my life that I, it, it enables me to thrive. And I really do believe that she brings these, her, her, values her beliefs were so entrenched we have the same values and beliefs and um in so many ways but then we also have our differences and that's the reality of so many people that you know and we we're open to talk about those as well and learn from each other and grow from each other and you know now having a child together like we've we both have had different parenting styles but then you know we both have very similar parenting styles at the same time and we learn those and grow it together as, as a couple and as a as a family and you're right. Like you're, you're, those first six months of relationship, people show their best, right? And but the reality is, is um, you know that's really not who a lot of people are, right? And and really, I I'm confident and comfortable enough to be who I am around around her, and she is the same. We're we're open and open enough to to share our values together, and um, I think you know her optimism and her um, her she cares so much. She has such a uh, a passion to care for people and and care for me and care for our family that um, I think it just we complement each other so well that um, 
yeah, like I said, I think she just enables me to, to thrive and she's so supportive of me as well. Um, and in our, our life, I call her my, my little cheerleader sometimes because she just, she just cheers me on. Right. And, and, and gives me that confidence in when I'm, uh, when I've achieved something that I may not feel is, um, as a big deal, she makes sure she highlights that for me. Like, Hey, like that's huge. Like what you're doing is, is, is fantastic. And look at what you're doing. So I think she really brings that, um, just that, that different counterbalance to me, yeah. right. To, cause I'm, I, I get caught up in work sometimes so much. And I, you know, the other night it's eight o'clock at night and I'm still getting the emails and she's like, Derek, you've been working like 12 hours today. Like you can get that tomorrow. And it's like, yeah, you're right. Like, it's, like this can wait. And you yeah. can get into that mindset because yeah. I struggle with that too yeah. of like one more email, one more response, totally. one more One step. more phone call or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And you need that person to be able to be like, you've done a good day, but you need to be able yeah. to do this tomorrow. And that yeah. was one thing that was really important to me to highlight is I don't want to have the person on who can do something really great for six months and then burns out and mm -hmm. needs to take six months off to recover from the six months they just did you need to yeah. be able to live your life in a sustainable way that doesn't just work today yeah. but works for five years where you're putting in the same amount of work where you're not sacrificing tomorrow for the work that you did today totally. and saying, i did 15 hours today and i'm just not going to work for the rest of the week because yeah. i put in so much work today yeah. you need yeah. that balance and to be able to find somebody who sees your shortcomings or where you might forget something because i agree exercise is a huge thing for me as well and it's tough because like i get home after like doing a nine to five oh, yeah. i want to be at home but i need to exercise to burn off that excess energy or that frustration yeah. with that customer who maybe was rude to me or just that bad mindset where you yeah. at the end of the day you kind of get that bad mentality that you need somebody to be able to be like yes go for your run and then we can relax and yeah. have the rest of our night and be in a better mood after that yep totally and, and and you're right like and she's very she's always been very supportive with me with that and you know even mountain biking it's I don't know, it's a long day sometimes mountain biking and, but it's a good escape for me to get out in the mountain and, and go, go connect, you know, and I, and really do something different and, and exert that energy. So yeah, and even soccer, I play soccer two times a week usually. Right. And, and that's a commitment as well. And, and, uh, but no, she supports me with that. So it's just, you know, and I support her with, with what she needs to do is stay healthy as well. Yes. What does right? she do? Can you tell us? A yeah. So about she's that? a, she was a spin, spin instructor, but then when COVID hit that obviously kind of stopped and then, uh, she was pregnant when things were starting to kind of open up again and they were going to allow spin classes, but we weren't sure the effects of COVID on a, on a, somebody who was pregnant. So we made the decision to um, don't go back yet. So she hasn't gone back yet and the spin room still hasn't really fully opened. So, you know, we made a compromise and we got, I got her a Peloton so she can work out from home. Right. Awesome. And that kind of thing. So, but then she worked at Earl's for, oh, a number of years. She was a server at Earl's for forever. And then she also worked her, her uh, uncle's own Simpson notaries. So she comes from the Simpson family in, in town that they own Simpson notaries. So she worked there for a number of years as well as a conveyancer and uh, right now she's staying at home and taking care of our, our little Jude. So tell us about that. Yeah. Judy's six months old now. He's just the a bundle of joy. He's the happiest little kid. It's just, um, uh, you know, I think somebody said to me that you won't know like love until you have a child. And then, you know, that level of love and attachment that you have with a child. And, oh, I mean that level of attachment, that smile, every time he cracks a smile, just opens up a different level of joy. And he's such a happy boy and he's so cute and just brings so much love and joy to our lives. And, you know, I thought, 
you know, we couldn't be happier in, even before we have a, an amazing little dog that's like our firstborn and uh, to have now Jude and seeing like our little family we made, it's just so amazing. It's, um, yeah, I, I love, one of the advantages of being able to work a bit from home through COVID is that I've been able to be there, you know, every day to, to watch him grow. And in between meetings, I can take a few minutes to be with him rather than being at an office where I don't get that, yeah. right? So uh, that work-life balance is just, it's enabled, working from home has enabled me to, to do that. Now we're getting back to into our office spaces and then our, our main office flooded. So we have to rebuild. So I'm realistically going to be home from working a mix from home and a bit at the hall for the next year. And, um, no complaints, I'm sure. No, like, you know, do I, and I, and people always say, well, working from home, you maybe don't work as much. I beg to differ the opposite really, because for a lot of people is that I just work differently, you know, and I, I work sometimes like that eight o'clock at night, I'm doing emails. Um, but it was a busy day, but it's, uh, but I, I just, I try to balance it a bit more that, okay, in between meetings, I can catch up on emails later unless they're urgent but I can spend some time with Jude, yeah. right? Instead of working 12 hours straight or 14 hours straight, I can spend, I have two hours off in the afternoon before I have another meeting. Okay, well, let's get out for a walk. Yeah. You know, like with my wife and I and the, and the dog and the kiddo, because I know I'm going to be working until eight o'clock tonight. And so I think that to me is, has been such an advantage. And um, I've really enjoyed that, that aspect of it all. And even being able to be there for my wife while she's pregnant, right? Like it's just been, it's been a fantastic experience. Yeah. Well, yeah. how did you come up with the name? Jude, um, you know, we both wanted something different. Uh, Jude Robertette. So Robert's named after her grandpa, who, like I said, has been really my grandpa. I grew up, my, uh, my dad's dad, like uh, my dad came from a very traumatic upbringing and, and very poor, uh, you know, family structure and his dad wasn't really involved in our lives very much, uh, very minimalistic near the end of his life. And we kind of took care of him and he passed away when I was quite young, t 10, I think. And then my, my mom's dad passed away when she was 16. So I had a, a step grandpa, but he wasn't really that involved with us at a young age. And he passed away when I was a, a teenager, late, late teenager. Uh, but we didn't have that same connection. So I've had a really fantastic connection with her grandpa bob my grandpa so we named the middle name after bob robert and the first name just jude she she had a couple names that uh, i said go ahead pick out a couple like really cool names and so she picked out a couple bounced them off me and uh, jude just stuck with me and i really loved it so yeah, yeah. that's awesome yeah. and can you tell us what it's like to have an identical twin oh, brother like what is this it is so like? cool it's so yeah. unique it is so cool like it's probably one of the i i don't know what it's like not to have like when yeah. people ask me what's it like to have a twin i don't know i don't know what it's like not to have a twin yeah. me and him i don't know what it's like to be lonely him and i are like i my wife she knew when she married me she married both of us and that was the reality same with his girlfriend they've been together a long time um when when they got together they knew that she knew that she she's together with both of us yeah. we text more than and we text her wives we text each other more than anybody else um we pretty much send each other good nights every night and good mornings in the morning <laughs> like it's just such a weird relationship uh that we're you know we're pretty much telepathic like we can have full conversations without saying a damn word to each other yeah. uh and it's just the way we've always been we've shared jobs we've shared you know, licenses. We've shared everything to the point of that, uh, that we've, we, we've shared cars. We've done, we have the same degree. We went through the same classes in school, albeit I've done other courses in business now since then, but he's, you know, we've both, 
uh, I, he's having a kid in November when I, when me and my wife were trying to have a baby, him and his wife shortly after their girlfriend shortly after thought, yep, we're going to try as well. So they're having a boy at the end of October, November now as well. So we're going to have boys in the same year. So we do everything together. We have the same dogs, sibling dogs. We drive the same trucks. <laughs> we, you know, we just, we do everything together and him and I are inseparable. Okay. So yeah. here's the question. Yeah. How are you guys different? Uh, you know, you know what we are, our personalities are different. We definitely have different personalities. Like I, you know, even we've chatted about this is that, uh, Tyler's like, I couldn't do your job. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't do your job. The, what, what you have to do is, um, but then again, like now he's getting into this more director positions at Yothmeath, um, where he is doing more or less some work that I do yeah. being that more political face for the agency and working on a different levels, doing this like court modeling stuff. Um, so we, but we do have different personalities. Tyler definitely has, um, he's more, I, I don't know how to put it. He's just more of a, a calmer patience to him than I have. You know, he's very, uh, good with his, his words in a way that, um, he knows to articulate things in a different way than, than I do. And I have a different way of articulating things. We have different personalities, but we're so very much the same in different ways. So, yeah. um, yeah, he's, I always could say Tyler could kill somebody with words. Yeah. He's very good at, at like really talking his way and very quick witted. And I was always more of like that, that physical kind of guy, but I'm, I was always very good with words as well. But, um, but yeah, me and him, differ in our personalities but we're so very much the same yeah yeah that's awesome because yeah. i think that that is something that people miss out on so much is having that that deep connection and being able to own it yeah is something that i feel like a lot of people struggle with like being willing to say i text him in the morning and at night yeah. like that's something to other people i'm sure that like oh that's weird but yeah it's like, that shouldn't be weird we should be trying to have those connections with people we, more we are codependent yeah. i will admit it both of us are codependent on each other like yes we are but is it a bad thing no because like we have conversations that I would never have conversations with, with other people. Yeah. We have conversations like with each other that we probably don't have with our, our partners, yeah. right? And then we're able to have those conversations that those, those tough ones, those, and also those work conversations sometimes that are difficult for so many people to understand. Like I, me and Dave, Jimmy have those conversations sometimes about work stuff that probably nobody else understands. Yeah. You know, my wife, I, we talk, and she's a very good support network for me, but there's a lot of things that she probably doesn't understand about my role, what I do, that are stressors in my life. Tyler is the same thing. Tyler has a job that's very high stress, child protection. So me and him can work, talk, have conversations that um, that are at a different level, right? And, uh, and especially when we're talking about our passion of working with children and families, both of us have that passion yeah. in making changes. Um, so yeah, it's a relationship that, and my mom is such a, was has been such a driver of that from when we were kids we'd fight like twins like don't get me wrong we full fist fights and full like you know we, we would get in some pretty heated exchanges but at the end of the day my mom would always park us in a room sit us down make us talk it out and hug each other at the end and say this is a bond that you're never going to have with anybody else and you have to cherish it and we do. And, you know, I, a lot of kudos to my mom for instilling that in us. Yeah, yeah. I wish that was more instilled in people because yeah. we have this very, like, I don't, I don't know. When I was growing up, I had these strong friendships, but they were never advocated to me as being important yeah. or as like teachers, um, like your parents, they don't treat your friendships like they matter, like mm -hmm. they're going to outlast them or their role in your life. Like you don't get that same 
treat this person as if they're going to be there because I think that that to me is like what a marriage is is you're you're stuck with each other yeah. you don't I don't like the idea that divorce is an option because I think that it's important not to have somebody to be able to be honest with you where you don't get to walk away yeah. you don't get to run away when the conversation gets tough and I think right now in our society part of the reason I started the podcast is because I don't feel like we're having the tough conversations I feel like our news our information that we receive is so filtered that it removes all the important aspects out of it so that it's easy to consume or that you already have your side chosen for you on what the right position to have where I like I think that your point about there's certain things you just don't understand until you're in it like I didn't realize some of the nuances of um, interviewing people and how to mm -hmm. communicate and so talking to other people who go through those same processes it's important and having to start at the very beginning of like what is how do you do this? And like explaining all the basics yeah. can take so long that it's tough to have those real conversations about and get to the meat of the issue. So yeah. I'm sure that having that connection with somebody who's known you forever, who like, cause we always have these like weird things that we always do. Like, I don't mean to say this about a person. And like, I don't mean to say that this life yeah. approach is correct. Not having to do that in a meaningful conversation is so important. But you, when you're talking to people you don't know, you always want to be like, I'm not saying that that's for everybody or I'm not saying yeah. my way is the best way. It's like, we always have these like little details that we have to add in to make sure that we're not like judged based yeah. on that one sentence we gave. And you get to let that go with your wife or w with your twin brother. Totally. Yeah. And be open to being wrong. Yeah. Right. And I think that's a really big uh, piece that I, you know, I really enjoy taking into my friendships, my life, with my wife, with work, though. You know, yeah, I have an idea, and I think it's a good idea. Yeah, of course I do, because it's my idea. I think it's a, a good approach. But at the end of the day, I may be wrong, and I'm open to that. You know, and I think there's a lot of people that, you know, like those relationships are so key to be able to bounce ideas off people and be like, am I completely off the mark here, yeah. or am I on the right track? And that's, you know, and I have different relationships with people like my twin like my wife like dave jimmy where i different people where i can go to and say hey i have this idea or this concept or this approach what do you think yeah. you know and being able to shoot me straight and not not give me what i want to hear you know what i mean like i i think all too often people are just agreeing with people because that's the easiest thing to do yeah. when it's you know i think as you know you you make change by questioning process people decisions ideas and you get better ideas you get better results if you can be strong enough in your position to accept those ideas and change your views then i think that's where you really growth happens yeah. absolutely how, how how did that come about for you because i assume that that was a learning process like any other to yeah. be able to develop that confidence and to be able to say okay tell me where i'm wrong and i actually want to hear it because a lot like i know a lot of people who like to just hear how they're right and so yeah. what was that like for you counseling probably did the best for me for that yeah. um being able to humble yourself and understand that um i have faults you know i have uh, i have things things about me that um, that have, you know, probably hurt people along the way and, um, and being able to humble yourself and realize that I, I don't know all the answers and why should I, you know, why should I know all the answers? Yeah. Uh, there's other people who are way more experienced in very different aspects of, of life, of education, of professionalism that I don't have. And I probably will never have. And being able to accept that, I think is like I, I mentioned earlier about my health role, the health council role. I'm not a doctor. I'm not involved in the health system, like in, in, a, in a clinical fashion. Yeah, I was involved in social work, but that's different than health. So who do I use or who do I utilize to bring that expertise to the table? So I lean on the people who are actual 
actually in those positions to help guide me and to make the, the sound decisions. But, you know, you have to be able to step back and, and understand that that's not your area of expertise and, and accept that. Yeah. And, and what, are your, what are you doing then to build the people around you? to provide you with those expertise then to move forward. Right. And, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, all too often it happens where somebody like you, you put somebody in this position of chief and people expect you to know everything, expect you to make all the right decisions. Have I made bad decisions over the last five years? Yeah, I would say so. Probably. Is there stuff I look back on that I think I would do things differently now? Absolutely. hundred percent. And I'm willing to expect, accept that and move forward. And now Next time when that decision comes up or that topic comes up, I think of that. You know, I'm not going to do that again. Yeah, yeah and, and really being able to, to really take that and learn from it rather than take that and say, no, I still think I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, I still think I'm right, even though it didn't work the first time. I still think I'm right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that that is an important thing to highlight because I think that people do struggle with wanting to hear the thing that makes them feel good in the short term, but actually does detriments to them in the long term yeah. and their ability to succeed and develop and grow. I'm also interested to know what businesses that you enjoy and support in the Fraser Valley and where you enjoy visiting. Oh yeah, you know I love um, little cafes like Little Beetle Bistro is one of my favorite spots. I go there, with, I take my dad there a lot. Um, it's one of his favorite spots. Um, I like you know Harvest Cafe downtown. My wife loves all the little boutique shops like the Button Box and stuff like that. Um, you know I oh my my uncle Greg owns the Garrison Bistro and the Garrison Liquor Store in there so throw a plug out for him <laughs> um, but what do you get from these places nothing no, yeah. <laughs> no no it's family i mean yeah it's family but i you know we, we go for lunch and he'll pick up the bill sometimes stuff like that but yeah. that's that's you know we i don't expect anything either right what i get from the places that i like is good food and good service yeah, what, yeah, like, yeah. i mean like what oh. food do you like getting from them? oh the little beetle bistro their uh their chickens their grilled chicken sandwich oh and the service there the the ladies and the owners there are just fantastic they know um they know my, my dad has dementia and and Lewy body disease so his memory is not great. Sometimes his uh, his behaviors are, you know, a little depending on the day. Um, but so I love going to Little Beetle Bistro because they know that there and they and they know his order. He always gets his clubhouse and his soup and and they know what um, if he's they can tell if he's having an off day or whatever. You know, he's put his he's put sugar in or sorry um, salt in his coffee before, like stuff like that. So they know. Sorry, what is the what is it called, Louis? Body? Louis body disease. What so it's uh, basically it's like a. It, it's not talked about a lot. Like um, Robin Williams had Lewy body disease and dementia as well, actually. So that's a lot of, um, and it's not really talked about a lot. It's like a mix of Alzheimer's and dementia. And it basically, uh, it's basically like a roller coaster ride of ups and downs of dementia mixed with Alzheimer's. And, and it really affects the, the body a lot more. Like it almost, uh, you know, eats away at his, his body a bit more. So his, his muscles are always sore. His, he's tired. He's very tired. Like he sleeps, you know, he's in bed at 10 o'clock or 9 to 10 o'clock at night and sleeps till 8 or 9 in the morning. Then he's up for a couple hours and sleeps from like 12.31 till, depending on the day, to like 4 or, or 5, right? So he doesn't have a lot of awake windows, but um, but he, he, so it's his combo. It's like, but he has good and bad days. Like he, so we went on a family vacation to his, his sister's place who live on Quad Dry Island just off of Campbell River. And he, he's so stubborn. My dad is so stubborn and um, so strong, really. Like he's in, in trying to hide his symptoms and, and he just says, oh no, I'm getting over this illness. I'm going to be better. And he just, he carries this mentality that he's going to beat it, which good for him. Right. And, um, 
but uh, but that's not the reality. Uh, but he really tries his best, especially going over to see his sister to, to show his sister that he's okay and you know and he's 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 healthy and and he does his best. So we were there for five days, and he by the fifth day he's just wiped. So luckily we we're we we're going home, and for the two days after he pretty much slept for like two days after, but he was exhausted from just holding on to like trying to show that um he's strong and 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 carries him and tries to show that you know this disease doesn't have me type of thing right so um yeah it's tough it's been challenging so he he retired and my mom and dad had these big plans to go and travel and retire and whatever and like not long after he retired we really noticed a lot of the symptoms that came through and then finally we realized he's probably had this for five ten years yeah. we just didn't know it because he was if you know my dad bruce he's just a really quirky guy he's bruce like if anybody knows bruce app they know it's just he's just bruce he's just quirky he's 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 a he's a funny guy he's got this character he's a character he's just got a character to him that you know he's like anybody else but then you know he's he's definitely lost that now right like with the disease he's he's definitely a shell of who he was before um but he still has those moments where it's pretty cool to see and shine through but yeah that's awesome and yeah. i'm sorry to hear that yeah, obviously yeah. that's got to be a difficult thing to watch but it sounds like you guys are handling it it's yeah i mean it's tough like yeah originally i, I admit like 100 percent, it was tough when he first trying to figure out what's going on with him and and what's what's wrong that was it was definitely a, a battle like i questioned it i was in denial i thought nope not a chance is he sick like that but you know, you eventually come to the realization that it is, and it, it's it's sad to see, and it's sad to see my my mom. It's struggle. It's tough on her, right? Now she went from having plans to retire to now being a full time caregiver, right? And so that's a very different life than what she imagined and entailed. And um, but you know, she's just been amazing to be a caregiver for him, and and really um, do everything to keep him and keep him home as long as possible. And so that and he lives, I could he lives about two, 300 meters away from me in, in a Malloway village with my mom. And, um, so I, you know, fortunate enough that I can see him quite a bit, which is really nice. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. awesome. And I think that that also goes to show the strength of family and yeah. the resilience that family can have and the impact that, cause I, I don't think that the goal should again, to be happy. It's that you are going to face adversity and mm -hmm. tragedy and yeah. unfortunate times. And it's how community and family comes together through that, that I think really helps people through. You, you mentioned Malloway Village. Yep. Can you tell us about some of the developments that we can expect? Um, the Sky Nest, yeah. Indian Horse, how did all these come about and, and what can people expect if they're looking to move there? Yeah, so, uh, you know, uh, Sky Nest is more gonna be like a retire, like over 45 apartment building. Um, beautiful, beautiful building, beautiful design. Uh, Iron Horse is gonna be a mixed development of uh, town, predominantly townhouses and detached homes and row homes. And it's absolutely, I really love the layout, the master plan of Iron Horse. They're taking the developers diverse, is taking the same approach that they did with River's Edge, um, just off of, uh, you know, peach uh, there. And it's more, you know, green space, walkability, you know, some good park space. So I really like the master design of Iron Horse and Base 10 is very similar. Base 10 is uh, predominantly, uh, it will be just townhomes and apartments. But then Malloway Village is uh, retirement, like gated community style uh, development. And that was predominantly the uh, development on Chiacton for, for a number of years because of the stigma of living on reserve was so because leased land, right, was such a stigma to it that not everybody, you know, trusted to live on on reserve. But retirees uh, had no issue with the the lease, ninety nine year lease or one hundred forty nine year lease, because they thought, hey, good value, great community to live in. 
I'm not going to be here forever anyways. And this is a good place for me to retire. So predominantly we had gated communities for the longest time, but now it's shifting to more uh, large scale residential developments. Yeah. yeah. And how does that, how do you see all of that connecting in your head? Because you're seeing all of these connections. It really feels like, uh, like the Vedder area is really coming together where I would say there was this disconnect between promontory yep. and um, like the save on foods. Garrison, and then there's like nothing in between. Exactly. Yeah. And so how do you see all of that kind of coming together in your mind? Because it seems like you'll be able to go from promontory all the way down the hill. Um, you'll be able to go shopping there. Yeah. You'll be able to hopefully get over to um, like the Keith Wilson area all more accessibly. How do you see that coming all about? Yeah. I mean, and that's where like we work very closely with the city on planning, yeah. right? And, and understanding that when, when they know when we have developments coming up and so we plan for you know walkability accessibility you know increasing the roadways and all that so i think it's you know it, it was tough because i remember growing up and seeing all the trees on both sides of the property right and and i know all the stories of people you know growing up there as well and so to see it come down was i sad yeah of course i was right it was a part of my childhood a part of my life that that was that it was changed forever uh but you know looking at the um, how this is becoming, like we, we're kind of co like coining this term called Sardis Central. Like it's kind of Sardis Central. Chiacton is Sardis Central. Like this is the new, the newest development of, of the Sardis side of, of Chilliwack. Garrison was there, River's Edge was there, now it's Sardis Central. So that's kind of this, with all the developers, it's kind of this, this mantra that they're all taking is that this is the next, next place for families to live in Chilliwack, the next neighborhood to, for families to thrive. There's two schools beside it. There's a shopping center. There's more commercial space to be coming to Chiacton as well um, on the newer developments. So this place is going to be a, a, a you know, residential development, a, a place where families can thrive and live and come home from work and not have to drive to shopping centers right like that's kind of what we're going for in some of these mixed developments that are going on right now is that if you live in iron horse base 10 or sky nest or any of these you can come home from work and you don't have to get in your car to go to the grocery store or you don't have to get in your car to go access some of these these services so um yeah i think it's it's a really cool thing to be a part of and to, to really do these master design plans for that area to try to make it um the best possible living environment for all people living there whether it be members or not yeah yeah i'm really happy to hear that and my next question is you've got all these roles you're making a huge impact in the community for those people who might be struggling unmotivated feeling a little bit mm. lost what would you say to a person who's who's not in your position who yeah. who dreams of one day filling your shoes and who wants to be the be the next Derek app but doesn't feel like they're there yet and maybe feeling a little bit lost what would you say to that person you know i'd say just just start you know just start somewhere start small if it's university that you feel like that's going to help you get to where you want to be then then take that leap of faith and and be bold be strong be uh you know uh, take chances right and and if even if you want to go to post-secondary university, you don't know what you want to do. Uh, start with some general classes and just get open your eyes a bit to it. And if that's not for you, then so be it. That's totally fine and normal. Um, but if you want to, you know, get yourself to be in a leadership position or or give back to your community in any way, shape, or form, start to understand um, the needs of your community and where you can fit in. You know, build your own like understand your skill set. You know, I know my skill set now. And I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not. I know my weaknesses as well. And 
building that skill set in order to really uh, push you to that next level in life, I think is really important. And building those strengths to, or building those weaknesses and turning them into strengths is also critically important to moving forward and being a leader. You know, I knew some of my weaknesses were in math and the, the finances side of things. I can read financial statements all day. Like that's easy enough for me. And I understand that, but it's the deeper level of finances that I lacked in around, you know, budgeting, financial planning, um, putting together uh, feasibility studies, analysis, and whatever that might look like. That's where I lacked. And I knew that. And even in math, like I, you know, math was never my strong point, but I took it upon myself to go and seek out courses to, to build that weakness up. And is it a strength still? Meh. Is it something that I consider one of my strengths? Not quite yet. Am I getting there? Yeah, yeah. But I, um, but it's still, I think it's really important to look at what your skill set is and where you can contribute and start there. And maybe that'll grow into something different. Maybe you will turn in. And if you're from Chiacton and you, and you want to be the next Derek, come talk to me. <laughs> like, I'd love to work with you. I know there's one guy in particular from Chiacton who I've been bugging for the last year and a bit about, when do you want to start getting mentored? When do you start wanting to get mentored? He's kind of pushing back on me a bit, but still, I'm going to keep bugging him. Yeah. Uh, but it's just one of those things that I think it's, um, start asking. There's a lot of people you may think are intimidating or not open to talk to you and, and to, to share their story and share their challenges with you. But I am, and I know people like David Jimmy are, and I know people, these leaders, these big leaders in our community would be more than willing to share some of their story, our challenges, because we have faced many challenges. I have faced many challenges in my life to get to where I am, and I still do. But, you know, it's about really persevere, persevering through it, pushing through, and, and doing what you know is right and best, and really living, living your life by that. Well, I think that that's brilliant advice. I really like uh, your reference to math because I agree. I was never a great math person, but I never let myself be the person who says, I'm not a math person yeah. because I know so many people who said that based on like grade 10 math. I know. And it's like, that's not a reflection of like, just because you weren't a great artist in grade 10 doesn't mean you couldn't be a great artist today totally. or great at anything else. And so we get to sometimes locked in who we are and that identification of I'm not a math person. Yeah. I've heard it in almost every job I've worked with people and is I've just never been a math person. And it's like, well, did you ever really try beyond grade yeah. 10 or grade 11? If you didn't, then that's not really a reflection of what totally. your math abilities are. Yeah. And I think that that's important for people to start to think about. And even practical math. Not everybody realized that like I worked in construction for an of years as well while going through university and uh, you know I met a lot of painters drywallers framers who said the same thing oh no school is never my thing but then you like those guys do math those trade workers do math daily yeah. you know how much paint does it take to paint a wall you got to figure that out square footage that's math you know it's tangible math yeah. that's practical math so don't tell me you can't do math you do it every day yeah. so it's really like that flip in that flip in your mentality around you're right like I thought for the longest time I can never do math never will be a mathematician, took those business courses at UBC and realized I can do math. Yeah. You know, I'm not stupid in math. I actually know how to do math and I can do this. I can excel in it. If I really wanted to put my time into it, I could probably excel in math as well. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that really opens the door for people because we say that so often. And yeah. when I was growing up, math was like a necessity because we had $200 at the grocery yep. store. And so how do you make that stretch? And yeah. so the mindset is, well, how do I figure out if this pack is 12 for $20 yes. and this pack yeah. is 24 for $15, which is the better deal? Practical yeah. math. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's where people need to reconnect with who yeah. they are and really 
really go through what they've been telling themselves about themselves. But I also want to give you huge credit because I remember presenting to you when I was a native court worker regarding the native court worker program to um, the Stolo Nation Chiefs Council. Chiefs Council. And just I remember the intimidation I felt personally from meeting with you, meeting with David Jimmy, knowing the impact you had on your communities, knowing where you guys were taking your communities and having this immense humility to the responsibility you have, to the leadership that you've shown. Like you, your two names are really well known Mm -hmm. in our community. And I think that that is a testament to your willingness to put yourself out there, to advocate and to be reasonable, to show all sides of yourself, not just Mm -hmm. I only talk about this one aspect and i think that that is a huge door for people because i think that you are the next generation i'm sure you've heard that of leaders in the indigenous community and i think that through this um through our other interactions you really set a strong example on how to communicate with others how to work with others and how to have that humility when Mm. you don't know and i think that that's something so many can get out of this because right now through all of the discoveries of these recent lost children we're looking to leadership and i think that people should be turning to yourself to other indigenous leaders who have set the example already who have already said this is how we want to move forward and to support you in that endeavor because i think that right now we're we're, it feels like the conversation's a little lost and i'd like to look towards people like yourself who set that strong example yeah i mean it's it's really difficult it's been a trying time for for not only our community but you know all the indigenous people across you know turtle island and uh with the discoveries and the constant, you know, I like to use the word recoveries because, you know, we, our people knew that those children, our ancestors were there, right? And, and they, we're not discovering them. We're recovering them and trying to do the right thing by bringing them home. And we're taking on that work here in, in Stalo territory as well. We're going to be doing the same, same work that so many communities are doing right now at Stalo Nation and on the uh, St. Mary's site in Mission as well. And, there's going to be, it's going to be some tough years. Like, you know, that's the reality of this current situation. It's going to be some tough years. And, uh, you know, it was a challenging couple of weeks, months after the discovery. I had phone calls from elders and who were triggered, who were crying to me over the phone. And, and that's heavy. Right. And, and, but I, I can't imagine what our survivors are going through right now. The bandaid being ripped off without any notice. Like that's one of the things that I, we would have appreciated as leaders is like, give us a heads up that this is coming, that this discovery, this recovery is coming, the first one into Kamloops, so that we can prepare our survivors. We had people from Chiatin who went to Kamloops uh, Indian Residential School, and um, and then to see the impacts that this had on some of our elders is just you know horrifying. And we held a ceremony in our longhouse for our survivors and the ones we lost um, not too long after the the recovery of the to Kamloops. Um, children and it was really powerful to be in there and and take such a negative subject a negative experience and turning that into something to uplift and come together as a community and to really show our support for our survivors and then and respect the ones we've lost and um, i think to me that was such an important piece that we needed to do as a community and now it's now what are we doing as a collective to really help heal you know, as a community as well. And that's where now I think this focus on social and health in my own community and at a larger picture now my role as a in the health authority, I think we're trying to take this shift on focusing on the mental health aspect of all of these individuals and the families impacted by residential school and these findings. Um, now, what do we do with putting in place to 
to support those individuals, uh, to ensure that um, they have the resources they need to to heal and to succeed. Because it's it's not going away. It's not going away anytime soon, right? And and these it's going to be a long couple of years. I just want to know your thoughts because one of the frustrations I guess I had was it felt like this became a publicity thing mm. that really disconnected. The people I think we should be hearing from, yeah. from the people who kind of snagged the spotlight. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, it is difficult. Like, I try not to get too much into the media about all of it. But at the same breath, it's really unfortunate to see that the media isn't picking up on all of the the recoveries that are going on right now either. I mean, I think we're up close to getting, creeping up to 10,000 children that, are, that have been found now. And have we heard anything since the original couple findings? No. Is it like, has it just been kind of brushed under the rug again? It's pretty sad to see that it really hasn't gotten the attention that I think it, it needs to, in order to, to really put it out there that, you know, this is, this is a horrific time in Canada's history. And it wasn't 150 years ago. The last residential school closed in 1996. Yeah. You know, I was six at that point, And so many people, and so many of the people who were involved in that system uh, and the trauma and the abuse and the abuse of power and the, the abuse that went on in there are still alive. Yeah. You know, and some of the people who actually instilled that abuse are still alive. So, you know, you look at, you read, doc, you see documentaries on, on Netflix and whatever about how they're still trying to prosecute people who were involved in the, um, the camps, Auschwitz and stuff like that. And they're still trying to prosecute people who are involved in that process. What about, the people who are involved in the residential school process, yeah. you know, who's holding them accountable? Why aren't they, why aren't they attacking that the same way they're attacked, they attack the Holocaust, yeah. you know, and it's such, um, and I don't want to compare or say that one was worse than the other. Sure. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get in that, don't want to do that debate either. Cause I think both have had lasting negative impacts on so many people that, um, and systemic intergenerational trauma on so many people on different levels. But it's not being treated with the same level as I think that it should be. Yeah. yeah. I uh, couldn't agree more. And I guess my frustration is just seeing those individuals kind of utilize it as a publicity stunt to say, oh, I'm a counselor in the community and like follow me on Instagram and like I'll talk about this topic. And it's just like, this is not how I want this topic discussed. No. And the fact that the media isn't turning to leaders like yourself or just the, in the indigenous people, I think that could be spokespersons to have a yeah. serious dialogue. It feels like we're going to the people who are going to say, say the same coined type yeah. of terms. You know, and I think it, it goes back to even... You know, the policies, the, the, the legislation, the acts that are still govern so many First Nations communities across this country, it's, does it, does it take the findings of children to make that change? Yeah. And why? Why does it take the findings of, of residential school children to, to begin to look at racist, racist and oppressive policy? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it just is, or are they, or, or is the government even going to, listen or is the government even going to take that as um, an opportunity to make change i don't know like we're so early on in this that um, i think you're right though it's using this as an as a means to, to capitalize on on topics and and capitalize on hey pay me to do a talk on residential schools like no that's not what this is about yeah. right it's about how do we heal now and how do we move forward while making change so that 
you know, substantial change to systems and policies and procedures and health? And how do we use it to drive us to make more change? Well, yeah. and how do we acknowledge people like yourself who have put in in place to make sure that members have access to counseling yeah. as much as they need? Yeah. And the fact that, to me, that doesn't get any publicity or any acknowledgement when an Indigenous community is doing good yeah. and is on the right track. It's very frustrating to me that that doesn't get this any publicity in comparison and nobody's going out looking for that right. story. And we did it. We had intentions of opening that program soon. But then as soon as the findings came out, we instantly pivoted and said, nope, this is a priority now. Yep. Like, we, need to make, we need to get this going now. And right away within a month or so, we had counselors, we had the program set up in-house, and we had it going right away. Because we knew right away this was a need, and, and this can't wait. This has to be done. Yeah. yeah, I just wish that that got more acknowledgement yeah. because I think it's so it sets the like it's about role models yeah. for me and that's you set such a strong example in your community yeah. for catching things early on for having that correct mindset and I just really want to appreciate you for coming out today and being able to share your story and to share your mindset and your philosophy and acknowledge the people who've helped get you here because I think that when I read your bio on uh, your Shiacton website, yeah. it talked about your family. It talked about the people who helped motivate you to mm -hmm. run for chief and we have to pay homage to those people too because without those individuals, you might not have run. Shiacton might not have gone the path it has yeah. and there, we would have missed out on a role model who set such an incredible example and so I just, I really appreciate your mindset and your philosophy on how you approach others, on how you communicated with me throughout planning this podcast and i just really appreciate yeah. you for taking the time no worries and thank you thanks for inviting me you know i really enjoyed this i think uh super easy discussion to, to chat with you as well and um you know i really got to give kudos to you as well i think you're doing some fantastic work in our community and even this you know the podcast and just um bridging gaps even between you know your interviewing indigenous and non-indigenous role models in the community i think that's really important to see you know, and see how, how we work together and how we work separately, right? And really showing those differences and similarities and, and bridging the gap. And I think you're playing a big role in that. So really kudos to you, man. I think you're, you're doing some good stuff. So keep it up. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. And I hope to work together in the future. You bet. Thanks yeah. again. Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs>